Welcome back, everyone. <laughs> I'm Aziz. Myth me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredis. Yeah, we were distracted by a bird outside right before. I yelled, shut up, bird. And then we just kind of lost it and haven't regained it. So, ah, A Dance of Dragons, A Dance with Dragons, is the longest of the books so far. And it's also the darkest and least understood, thanks to being the most recent. It's the culmination, also so far, of George R. R. Martin's style, honed over the course of the prior books and the rest of his career. It has the extended length of A Storm of Swords, the expanded pacing of A Feast for Crows. It brings POVs together like A Clash of Kings and has the setup of A Game of Thrones. If you're watching live, you can feel free to ask live questions. You can also send questions and comments ahead of time by joining us on one of our social media outlets, Facebook, Flick, Discord, or Slack. Lots of good discussions happening all over. Please check out the Isle of Faces. That's Joe Buckley's podcast every week. He is in tandem with us. Same chapters, different discussion. And also check out Nina Friel's Tumblr. That's Good Queen Alley with one L. Her thoughts and takes are all over every episode of Ally Reread Us. We couldn't do it without either of them. If you want to support History of Westeros financially, you can join us on Patreon. One thing, one benefit I rarely mention that's uh, available that all levels of Patreon get is that by signing up, you get access to a secondary feed. It contains all the same episodes plus the bonus episodes, and it doesn't have any network ads. So there's no interruptions from third parties with ads at all. There's still the occasional ad from us that's read, but nothing inserted by third parties, no sponsors, things like that. So that might be worth a couple bucks to remove, but if not, keep doing what you're doing. Just enjoy it, and we'll keep doing it. Same goes for Anchor Support. You can find the link in the description if you're looking at the podcast. You can't see that if you're looking at the video, but there's other lots of ways to support if you go to our website, historywestros.com. Today, we have John 1, Threats Beneath a Hinge of the World, a.k.a. the one where Melisandre says, You know nothing, Jon Snow. Bran 1. The gang learns Cold Hands is dead, a.k.a. the one where they eat Night's Watch deserters. Mmm, deserters. <laughs> Tyrion 2 on the Valyrian Road, a.k.a. a two-headed dragon dream. And the merchant's man. Here comes the sun's son, a.k.a. George's pen swings in a cruel arc. You kind of knew that already, though, didn't you? But it's particularly cruel with Quentin. On the heels of everything we learned about skin changing and second life in Veramir's chapter, here we have John and Bran both with more skin changing in their chapters too. That's a lot of skin changing. We don't have a dandy chapter today, but I want to include her in the theme talk today. She was the last chapter last week. Bran and Danny have always had a lot in common from a very high level in terms of story plotting. Arguably, they are more powerful than any other characters. And a core tenet of A Song of Ice and Fire is how power corrupts. Daenerys and Bran combined at the start of the series weren't even old enough to wield the responsibility of drinking alcohol in the United States. Danny wouldn't even be allowed a car, but she does get a dragon, or, or three. Bran can't vote in any election in any country I've ever heard of, but he can see into your mind and see who you're voting for. Hmm. John isn't much older than either of them, and Quentin is about the same age as John. 
He has been tasked with playing in their league, but really he's not in it. There's a bit of a pattern with this book in that the young POVs dominate the early portion of the book and the older characters show up mostly in the second half to share with these youngsters. So that is surely another theme for today. Young people faced with enormous challenges that neither their upbringing nor their life experience has done much to prepare them for. And the adults aren't much help. In fact, many of the adults are making it worse. And some may have contributed greatly to the problems or started them in the first place. We start with a character facing a conundrum along those lines. What is John to make of Melisandre? She's helpful and she wants to fight Winter, but she also wants to burn people, sometimes innocents. And she's probably older even than Bloodraven. So there's that adults ruining things thing. Or are they? Without such beings, and with such beings, we are meant to wonder how much humanity is in them even as they profess to want to save the world. The conundrums deepen when we account for the fact that there's plenty of evidence that Melisandre and Bloodraven are sincere, perhaps misguided, almost definitely misguided, but sincere in wanting to protect the world from darkness. Yet we can't help but notice that so many of those who fight the darkness live in it as well amidst it among it. What you're seeing a lot of and will see more of is that darkness sticking to some of those younger characters. What does it say about those older characters then? Those who have been dwelling in that darkness for so much longer. Hmm. John Juan, Threats Beneath a Hinge of the World, aka the one where Melisandre says, you know nothing, Jon Snow. A chapter rich in the supernatural, full of groundwork for plot lines that extend beyond this book. A lot of times the setup is for within the book. A lot of times it's set up for going beyond. This really seems to be both. Nina reminds us that this beginning is a bookend to John's A Dance with Dragons finale, when he reaches for Ghost as he's dying. So the book starts and ends with the skin changer bond front and center. The magic of this is so much fun, and how all this impacts John as a person is equally front and center, if not more so. The first line is... The white wolf raced through a black wood beneath a pale cliff as tall as the sky. Hmm. We don't think it's coincidental that the beginning of this chapter feels extremely reminiscent of the beginning and end of Veramir's prologue, which also begins and ends with Warg inside a wolf running through lands beyond the wall. Here we have the same. Carrying the parallel further means seeing John likely end as Veramir dead. That is watching his human body die while his spirit flees into his wolf to live a second life. Of course, in John's case, it will probably be a short-term second life, but Still, the concepts are, are overlap. It may not be coincidence either that it's a stab wound, right? John got, is going to get stabbed at the end, and Faramir was also stabbed. John even deliberately wonders if, quote, some part of his dead brothers lived on in their wolves. Now, he's wrong in thinking they're dead, but he's not wrong in thinking that the spirits of dead wargs can live on in their wolves like he probably will. He thinks they're the example, but really, he's going to be the example. We start as we may well start in wins too, inside Ghost, right? That's um, quite possible since he's dying at the end of this one. Maybe it'll start kind of like Vermeer's prologue, like Nina says, with him looking at his own body. The early lines focus on the nature of winter, on snow, on the moon specifically. A lot more moon watching in this book, it feels like in Brand's chapters and Vermeer also, along with John, of course. 
the white wolf could end up becoming how we refer to John after resurrection. Is John going to get one of those different POV titles for his chapters while he's inside ghost? Will he be the white wolf or ghost or something like that? Not, it probably won't just be John if he's inside ghost, but hmm, we'll see. As we're pounded again and again with the word snow, the chapter has the raven yelling that a lot. Plus it comes up in a few other places. I mean, why wouldn't it, right? There's snow everywhere. But we're thinking of John here. Mormont's raven brings him back from his dream. The raven was kind of a star, as Joe writes at the end of Storm, helping elect John to <laughs> Lord Commander and other things like that, giving warnings and adding comedic value, things like that. Now we have a lot more certainty. Now, every time you see that raven, unlike the first time you read the book, you're thinking of Blood Raven. You're thinking of this character is this raven is way more than just a talking bird. Not everything it does is conspiratorial or secret, but you, you know, you're keeping your eye out for it. For example, this time, the raven is screaming at John to wake up. Is he concerned with him getting lost in his wolf? Is there something else that needs doing? I mean, nothing. There's no urgency apparent when he wakes up. Who knows? It's just very interesting. Ghosts can feel Shaggy Dog and Nymeria when we're in John's dream here. And we, of course, are looking for any kind of clues we can there. We get a little Shaggy Dog probably on Skagos. That's probably what we're seeing. This large goat is probably one of these unicorns, a single-horned shaggy creature. So unicorn slash goat, whatever term you prefer. We do have an episode on Skagos. It's, we made it quite a while ago. I believe it was before the World of Ice and Fire. The World of Ice and Fire didn't change a whole lot from it. We would probably add a few more bits to it if we redid it. But it's still very relevant. Check that out if you are so inclined. Some of you may not even be aware we made that because it was so long ago. Now, Rickon's location wasn't certain between A Storm of Swords and now, but this actually gives more clues to that. Of course, we all sort of take that for granted that we think we know where he is, especially because of the Manderly reveals. But this is part of that groundwork here, seeing that Shaggy Dog is in this strange location that if you piece all the details together, you can kind of figure it out. And that makes a lot of sense. Osha going somewhere that maybe she's more familiar with. She's from beyond the wall. Maybe she knows things about Skagos. Maybe she even has like family there or something like that. But you could understand why she would stay away from noble houses and perhaps why she would want to go to an island. Skagos is an island. And maybe she's even worried about... Uh, the others coming and thinking this is safer because of the water barrier. Now, on top of the other wolves, he can't sense Summer, but he doesn't think Summer's dead. It's kind of like when John was separated from Ghost on opposite sides of the wall and didn't have a sense of Ghost, but didn't feel like he was dead either. It's almost as if Ghost or Summer had died, he would know it because it would it would be such a strong feeling throughout the warg network or whatever term we want to use there. So it seems to be the same thing happening. Summer's on the other side of the wall, so Ghost can't sense him, but knows he's alive. Familiar scene comes when we see John in the practice yard. John practices his swordsmanship a lot. We pointed that out at some point in the past that it's a recurring theme. He is very dedicated, dutiful about that. This time he doesn't have time to practice. It's a, it's a show of things changing for him. He has so many other duties, and responsibilities, practicing his sword fighting. 
is still going to happen. We're still going to see it, but it's going to be a little less frequent. He's Lord Commander now. And it's only been two years since John took the black. Here he's challenged by Godry, the giant slayer, one of the queen's men, a group of dudes who seem exclusively terrible. They're either lacking in personality because we just don't know them yet, or they're bad. There's there's only two types. I don't think there's a single one of them I find uh, likable. Like the, the most likable is Justin Massey probably, and there's plenty of issues with him. That's also Richard Horp. Uh, Suggs, Clayton Suggs, Axel Florent. As a reminder, to be clear here, the Queen's men are the men following Stannis who have converted to R'hllor. They have the name Queen's men because she's the most prominent of the full converters. They take their lead from her, Solise. King's men are followers of Stannis who still follow the seven. That distinction is particularly important going forward, giving the questions hanging over Stannis's arc in totality. Ditto Melisandre. One of those questions is, who else is getting burnt? And that's a question that John certainly wants to know, and he's not taking any chances with some of them. Aside from that dark question, John and Stannis' stubbornness going head-to-head here is the source of some great dialogue. Here's an all-time favorite. The king was confused. I thought the wet nurse was this man Craster's daughter. Wife and daughter both, your grace. Craster married all his daughters. Gilly's boy was the fruit of their union. Her own father got this child on her? Stanish sounded shocked. We are well rid of her then. I will not suffer such abominations here. This is not King's Landing. Ha, <laughs> love that. Stanis has put him in a tough position, though, making demands that would cause him to break his vows. That's not cool. This central conflict of John and Stanis's conference is giving abandoned castles along the wall to Stanis, which he will then in turn give to certain loyal supporters amongst his lords and knights. This is the staunchest we'll see John be in terms of keeping the Night's Watch neutral. There's so many things pulling him to be not neutral. Stannis is one of them. He's able to keep it here, but there's so many other tests and tasks that force him to skirt the issue of Night's Watch neutrality or argue it or view it in ways that others would disagree with his take that he's keeping with the vows. Even he himself will later indicate that he sees the conflict when he goes up against Ramsay. So John's basically slipping, maybe you could say, that his ability to keep the Night's Watch vows tight is being distinctly challenged, and it's one that even he can't fully face, if he even should. Arguably, it's correct for him to break a lot of the Night's Watch vows to keep it its purpose maintained. What's more important, the vows or its actual purpose? Saving the world from darkness or, you know, is not, as in, is not less important than keeping their vows, right? So it's a very difficult challenge. It's one of these things that John is most struggling with. This is about as simple as it gets. And it's not simple because Stannis is, well, he's tough and ha- throws his weight around and very demanding and is... Uh, Hard to say no to. This argument recalls in reverse, Nina points out, the discussion in Fire and Blood. We'll eventually get to Fire and Blood with Valerie Reedus and we'll be able to come back to this. But for now, the new gift, Alaric convincing his bannermen to surrender lands for the watch. That's how this was created in the first place. Knights, uh, lords of the north had to give up some land for this. And now they're talking about giving it back because it didn't work out that well. So again, this was something tried only a couple hundred years ago. 
It's not something that was started thousands of years ago because when we talk about the, the long history of the Night's Watch, it's very long. So something that only happened 200-ish years ago, that's not that long, historically speaking. And this is, of course, during the time of Alisan funding the construction of Deep Lake. And now, though, we have the descendants of these Targaryens, Stannis is technically that, arguing to take castles back away from them. So, eh, it's a big, it's a different time. <laughs> this is perhaps all groundwork, at least in part, for a much tougher set of demands in the so-called pink letter, because that, as I just said, is what's probably the most obvious broken vow uh, since John became Lord Commander. There's a lot of debate on what counts as a broken vow or the letter of law and that, but that one is almost certainly where he's crossed a line. Again, whether he should cross a line or not is a different debate, but if that line's there, he seems to have crossed it. There's a lot of debate over the pink letter, but the letters received in this chapter are important too. <laughs> Lots of letters John gets. I mean, he's the Lord Commander. Many of them are deceptive in an inverse manner, meaning John's not going to question the pink letter. He's going to take it at face value. Tormund does throw in a comment like, you know, if I could write, I could write whatever I wanted. It wouldn't necessarily be true. The community is with Tormund. <laughs> There's a lot of doubt there. But the readers know for sure here that Stannis is being lied to. That's different. Manderley and others are unwilling to commit to Stannis by letter. That's one problem. They don't want these letters to fall into the wrong hands. But they are quite willing to join Stannis if the proper conditions are met. That, of course, we will learn later in the book through Davos's arc. But the opposite is true here, too. <laughs> Stannis says he has Carhold on his side, and they will turn out to be plotting betrayal. Though, of course, Stannis does catch that before it actually happens. So basically, you have a bunch of people saying, no, Stannis, we don't want anything to do with you. And one house that's like, yeah, we're with you. And it's basically, in every case, the opposite of the truth. The one house saying we're with you is planning to betray him, and the rest are all just biding their time, actually quite happy to turn on the Boltons, but need to do it right. John pauses to wonder about this letter. It is a little strange. Not just that a brave girl is displaying more honor and courage than all the adults. <laughs> and it's a nice parallel to Willa Manderley, by the way, whom Davos will be facing not long from now and respecting. But Liana's letter suggests that Lyra and Jorel Mormont, who are the middle daughters of Mage, they're between Alisan and Lyanna, are already with their mother, meaning they're not there to have answered the letter. That's what John is wondering. He's like, why is she, of all people, answering the letter in the first place? It's not, that, it's not her answer that confuses him. That she, he quite understands that. She's a northerner after all, and they're stubborn, especially the Bear Islanders. But it's why, why is it her, of all people, actually responding? Why isn't it one of her elders? We're going to see that when Deepwood Mott is attacked in Asha's chapter, that some of this stuff is resolved. Also, though, it's really important to note, Nina writes, that Mage Mormon is one of the only two people alive and free. Who knows that Rob legitimized John? So, well, there's a few other people who are alive and not free but dead, like, or free but dead, like Catelyn. <laughs> and others are captives, like the Great John and Jason Malister, who aren't going to be able to tell anybody. So this is pretty interesting to know. It's possible Leanna knows, too. That might be part of her answer, that she's aware of who the throne has really passed to. But 
how would she know because her sister's in the field? And would she have actually sent a raven back to Bear Island to inform her kin? Maybe. But that brings up the same issue here that sending ravens with these kind of messages is, is dangerous. They don't want to entrust that kind of secret to a bird. Of course, there's even more misdirection set up here very subtly. This book is full of misdirection, just like A Feast for Crows. It seems like every book in the series, George expects us to be a little smarter and more aware of his tricks. <laughs> here is a good piece of dialogue. By right, Winterfell should go to my sister Sansa. Lady Lannister, you mean? Are you so eager to see the imp perched on your father's seat? I promise you that will not help and that will not happen whilst I live, Lord Snow. John knew better than to press the point. Sire, some claim that you mean to grant lands and castles to Rattleshirt and the Magnar of Fen. Indeed. Well, Sigorn Magnar of Fen will become Lord of Carhold after the aforementioned Karstark betrayal and the escape and marriage of Alice Karstark to Sigorn. That's, of course, going to happen in John's chapter. So John's going to do that. <laughs> so many things laid out here in this chapter that end up being the reverse. We started with the declarations of loyalty from the Northerners, which were all pretty much reversed. Now we have this bit about castles. And of course, Rattleshirt's not getting anything. <laughs> He's getting, well, besides burned. <laughs> and this line, that will not happen whilst I live, Lord Snow. Well, you know what happens when someone says that won't happen like that until I, I'm dead? Well, it probably means that's what's going to happen. <laughs> Sansa's going to become Lady of Winterfell after Stannis dies. That was a timeline marker, I think. He just gave us some chronological uh, assistance there in the order of events. Most of all here, though, Stannis is being kind of ungrateful. He's very demanding here, and he's like I said, he's asking John to break his vows, which is not something a lot of people who are fans of Stannis like to consider, that he's a guy that's very duty-oriented, yet here he is asking for someone else to go against their duty and their vows because it's, he thinks his duty and his vows are more important. That's, that's Stannis for you. He is all about duty and vows, but he will put one set of them over another to the point that those that have been put secondarily, placed in second place, can be treated as if they're nothing. Um, and that's, well, Stannis is gray like everyone else. He's not good, not bad. He's Stannis. And that makes him very, very interesting and compelling. Afterwards, Melisandre tells John, after he, you know, John and Stannis have their fun argument there, Melisandre says accurately that it's his silences you should fear, not his words. And we've certainly seen that Stannis respects strength. I do think that Stannis very much respects John. He Stannis knows he's intimidating. Anyone who stands up to him is like, well, he stood up to me. It takes some spine to do that. She does also warn him to fear others. She's like, look, don't worry about Stannis unless he starts to get quiet. And this is clues for John's assassination at the end of the book. For those of you on a first reread you're going to start seeing this like the Red Wedding, meaning you're going to be amazed at all the foreshadowing and clues for Julius Snow's stabbing here. We're not all just getting better at understanding A Song of Ice and Fire by these rereads. We're just getting better at reading, period. We're understanding fiction better. All of us here on this journey in A Song of Ice and Fire, it's a challenging read. 
it's fun, and that gives us a lot of energy for it. But no one ever called it easy to understand this series. Well, if they did, they're wrong. I mean, here we are discovering new things 10 years after this book's been published, and we were not that long ago discovering new things in a book that's 20 years old. I think that's pretty cool. The foreshadowing for John is different in tone and style, but it's there. We write it off as something else. In some ways, it's more direct. It's like telling us, John, you're going to get stabbed in the dark. That's what Melisandre says. Here's the quote. It is not the foes who curse you to your face that you must fear, but those who smile when you are looking and sharpen their knives when you turn your back. You would do well to keep your wolf close beside you. Ice, I see and daggers in the dark, blood frozen red and hard, and naked steel. It was very cold. The last line of John's last chapter is, he never felt the fourth knife, only the cold. Yep, it was very cold. So she's sensing that. She's seeing that part of her premonition. And just before passing out, he says, ghost. This is the first time, but not the last, that Melisandre will warn John about daggers in the dark. She thinks about the vision in her own chapter, too while bringing up her warnings in a general sense to John and having him repeat it back to her. It's like he, she wants him to say it to help him commit it to memory. This happens again during the wedding of Sigourn and Alice Karstark. But John's just going to keep ignoring it, even using it to chide her for making nothing but mistakes in her visions in his last chapters, which to, uh, to readers is kind of like, you kind of almost side with John on that. It's like, yeah, she does make a decent number of mistakes. But of course, she's quite right. John should be afraid of the men he thinks he can trust, especially Bo and Marsh. Why didn't we believe this? Maybe it's because of that mixed record or because this isn't specific enough or because we saw John is having plot armor. Well, he does have plot armor. Maybe we just didn't imagine this possibility amongst all the possibilities, him dying and, and coming back maybe wasn't an, an initial uh, prediction for so many people. We might weight each of these factors differently as readers, and at the time, we may have weighted them differently. But it's probably all of the above, and some other reasons, too. There's some ominous foreshadowing at the beginning of this chapter when Ed says, you, you can get pruned when you least expect it. Pruning is cutting away the unwanted parts. When you're pruning leaves, you're cutting away the ones that are holding back the strongest it's kind of like John was pruned by the Night's Watch, but it's also John himself. He also just puts the idea down and we're in his head and that kind of makes us put it down too. He influences our take on her prophecy by us reading his internal monologues. She even asks him if he wants specific names of people who will betray him and he's like, no. And I think that's not a mistake. Given that he's not going to listen, he shouldn't just hear names and then like be wondering, like, well, should I not trust that guy? You're just going to be paranoid. So part of, from his perspective is he's like, he's doubting her abilities, doubting her veracity, doubting her takes, but she immediately gives herself some credibility with one of the most fine, uh, chilling final lines of a chapter. It is always cold on the wall. You think so? I know so, my lady. Then you know nothing, Jon Snow. She whispered. It might freak John out a bit too, but we don't see his immediate reaction. That's a freaky moment, right? That is chilling. I'm like, whoa. When I read that line, like, what? <laughs> he doesn't know if he can trust her, but this reminds her her powers are substantial. It's not just lighting fires under children that he's scared of or that he's wary of. She has legitimate 
magic. Like Davos, he tells almost no one about the baby swap that he's planning, possibly hoping that by keeping a low profile, her extrasensory methods of learning secrets will miss this. Just like Davos was, she's like, if we don't think about her or come for her or plot against her, maybe she won't notice us. We do our plotting, you know, obliquely to her. It worked for Davos, and we know it's going to work for John too. And this is something that Davos and John may bond over later. They're the two people that smuggled a child away from Melisandre to save their life in, you know, without permission to do so or knowing that it would be denied if they asked. On reread, this is all a lot different, isn't it? I recall back in the day when the fandom was very much in doubt as to Melisandre was up to, meaning before we read her chapter, her sincerity and agenda were in doubt. We didn't know whether she was misleading people on purpose or what was going on. But now, on reread here, we have this confidence that she is sincere. Again, misguided, but sincere. There is no, I'm going to screw all these folk. I'm going to, it's almost, my, aha, it's all coming together. I've got them in one place. I'm going to kill them all. There's nothing even close to that. There's no Mr. Burns excellent behind the scenes here. She is really, really trying to fight the darkness. And that just makes these scenes so much different, knowing that she has that sincerity. And there's no, like you've heard the real world saying probably, and it's said in A Song of Ice and Fire, there's no one truly terrifying, there's nothing as truly terrifying as a truly just man, just woman, same difference. Even though her intentions are not villainous, burning people is bad. That's still bad, right? Even if she's trying to do it for a good reason. I made that qualifier as simplistic as possible on purpose because it's just really hard to argue with that. It's really hard to argue that, no, actually burning people is good, except, you know, when blah, blah, blah. No, there's... We went over this before with the Edric Storm conundrum. George seems pretty clear on it, by the way it's written. Davos being our moral center for this. John's a moral center, too. John is one of these guys that's real stubborn about doing the right thing. We saw that with not killing the old man. That was his kind of Edric Storm moment where he just, this child is doomed no matter what. This old man is doomed no matter what. I still won't do it. I still won't kill him. It's not right. He's just that kind of guy. In his third chapter, not Mance is burned, right? And in his next chapter, he's going to send Sam and Gilly and Eamon away. We'll talk about that more then because that's where a lot more of that focus is. So John's concern for a child or Eamon burning comes before the big public burning, right? John's impetus to do something would have been even more frenzied had he witnessed a burning first, but he was taking action before that. It's something to keep in mind. He's aware that Mel has burned others before this. And he overhears a wounded man of Stannis muttering that they're going to burn Mance and his son. So both die kings. Kind of like how Drogo said he killed two Kals when he kills Kal. Fogo and then kills Ogo, who's his son, or maybe the names, maybe I have those names backwards, but you get the point. He was also, John was standing right next to Varamir when she torched Orel's soul, for lack of a better term. So he saw that. He's like, whoa, damn. <laughs> so I think that John has seen her powers front and center enough to know that it's significant and that she's for real not just in her intentions, but in her abilities. 
side note, what would John do if he knew that he has King's blood? That, <laughs> like, actually, they could burn me here. Would he fear that? Would he do something to remove himself from harm? Or would he just face that danger because, well, John doesn't run away? Or I don't know. But it probably won't come up, but it might come up later. He might think about it like, whoa. <laughs> I was right there with Stannis and Melisandre with Targaryen blood, and they didn't know. Power, of course, is a major theme of this chapter. John's rejection of the trappings of power is something that we start to notice here. Melisandre's going to criticize it directly in her POV. She doesn't think it's wise. It's part of the lead-up to John learning his own heritage, which is important. John rejecting the trappings of power, being a guy that doesn't like being elevated above others, who sees power as a means of, of good, of executing good, rather than a means of self-fulfillment or of self-protection or anything like that. That says a lot about what kind of conundrum this will be for John when he's confronted with not just his own heritage, but Rob's will and how he's going to react to having all this power thrust upon him, something that he doesn't really want. The appearance of power, Nina writes, is a major theme in this chapter, and it's a great contrast to Daenerys and the floppy ears. Daenerys is trying to fit in because she has to, but she doesn't want to. She sees the value of it. She's told by a lot of people that the trappings of Meereen are part of them accepting her. It's not quite the same here because John does look like a member of the Night's Watch. There's no bling that a Lord Commander wears in general. So he doesn't have to deal with that aspect of it. That part's easy for him. But still, the Lord Commander has guards and has meals brought to him, and there's definitely power there. There's definitely authority in that. John rejects even that, and that is probably not a good idea. Maybe that's us being hindsight judging here by saying, well, if John had been more authoritative, maybe they wouldn't have stabbed him. Maybe. I'm not sure about that. So there's a, of course, theme here of kill the boy, become the man. That's a big deal. John is the rare type who doesn't embrace power, but treats it with caution. It's the thematic opposite of Danny. Not that Danny doesn't treat power with caution, but neither of them see power as means for personal fulfillment. They both see it as means to achieve justice. But Danny uses it to cause change and end longstanding injustices where John is trying to keep things the same. He's trying to maintain a status quo while that's being assaulted from many directions. So it's I'm not judging either of them here. I'm just drawing a distinction between things that they have very much in common, but also things that are very different, mostly the circumstances facing them. So John is tasked with defending the realm, not changing it. Danny is the one faced with having to undo thousands of years of awful living, of an awful society. So they're both, however, great changers. John, in order to enact the proper means to defend the realm from these things has to do some pretty drastic things that aren't very popular, like an alliance with the wildlings. Like any other Lord Commander doing this is pretty unthinkable, traditionally speaking. They're like, Lord Commanders of the past are like, wait, what? You teamed up with the free folk. Other, remember that other Lord Commanders have never faced the, the others. Their entire means of existence, their entire justification for their existence was, well, others may come back one day, but really, day to day, the wildlings are who they fought. Every day, every week, that's who they're thinking about dealing with. Others are just like a forgotten concept. So it's hard to fully impress upon ourselves just how big a deal this is. 
And there's a lot more of a dead, there's a pattern of dead children here. We, we see that continuing. We see one dying in Vermeer's chapter, being eaten gruesomely. Danny's chapter has that as a climax, a child killed by a dragon. And here we have another, we have a refugee woman showing up at the wall with uh, a dead child in hand. It's just meant to continue our sense of dread and building up of, of what things, worse things to come, I think. Also, while reminding the leaders of the scope of their challenge here and how important it is for them to do the things they need to do because of what's riding on it. These, there's children's lives at stake here. Now, as far as Mance goes, there's a little hint uh, here with this line. I've spent hours speaking with the man. He knows much and more of our true enemy. Talk about a conversation we wanted to hear. Stan is talking to Mance. Now, Stannis might know even more than us now. <laughs> he might know more about the others than we do because Mance has been fighting them for a while. And if Mance was honest to Stannis, and I think he was about this, I fully believe Mance would lie to Stannis about some other things. But about the true enemy, I think he would tell pretty much everything he knows because enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of situation. And he also mentions Mance has cunning. He, he notices that too. So it's a big open question as to whether or not Stannis is in on the man's deception, whether or not Melisandre did that on her own and just kept it from Stannis. Personally, I think he is in on it. And this is set up for it, him mentioning Mance's cunning, because maybe, maybe it was partly Mance's idea to sneak into Winterfell and do all that stuff. Mance and his people are another question left to us at the end of Storm. This, that dance is in step of the wildling refugees that Stannis currently holds. At the moment, they seem like the secondary issue to Mance, but when combined with those brought south with Tormund, that's going to end up being the far more issue, uh, primary issue overall, especially in terms of John. Melisandre also mentions that this is a hinge of the world. And I mean, look, story-wise, the magic that is focused in this area and the plot focus in this area certainly <laughs> makes that statement feel accurate. But what does that actually mean? What does the hinge of the world mean? There's a little power there? Is it the wall's power that gives that impression or is the wall built there because the power supports it? It's a chicken or the egg kind of question. So she knows something of its true nature. We want to know more about that. Uh, we are going to have at least one more Melisandre chapter in The Winds of Winter. So maybe there'll be more answers there. Of all people, she might be one of the ones that know most about it. On the other hand, maybe Bloodraven or something like that. Maybe Bran will look in the past and we'll learn some more things about it that way. But I do think we will learn more about the origin of the wall and the types of magic built into it. And I very much look forward to that. When Eamon says, better men than Stannis have done worse than this, he might be talking about Summerhall, his own brother. Whether or not Aegon V was actually planning on sacrificing anyone is debatable. People died there, whether it was his intent or not, obviously that we don't know. But mm, if he did intend it, then boy, that's dark. And that would be a good example of a better man than Stannis doing worse than this. Aegon the Sixth Super Chat says, what does John do if he's back and knows or hears of Shireen? Really tough question because like, as we've just talked about with Davos, I think he, and like the man who raised him, Ned Stark, just won't have any sort of nuanced thought on the burning of a child. There's just no, well, he had a good reason for it. And there's not going to be any sort of excuse for that. He's going to be mad. He's going to 
react extremely negatively towards Stannis. I don't know if he'll react violently towards Stannis. Depends on the circumstances of his own armies and Stannis' armies and winter and what else is happening. But yeah, he, I think he's going to react the way Ned Stark would or the, maybe the way Davos would. Julie A. says, I think Mel has a point about the trappings of power. John needs to grow into his new role and trappings of power would help. Yeah, I agree. I think that's true. We're going to talk about this a little more next time because I have a real dim view on how John approaches Gilly. I don't think he's necessarily wrong about needing to protect the child. I think he's right about protecting the child, but I think he's very wrong in how he talks to her. And this is an aspect of that. The, the whole umbrella of him thinking how he has to kill the boy and how he has to become an adult He's got very mixed up ideas on what that means. He thinks becoming a, a, a man and killing the boy means be really harsh. It's like be more like Stannis or something. It's like, no, that's not necessarily being more manly. That's being more harsh. <laughs> that's just being more strict and blunt. That isn't necessarily more adult. Not all adults are like that. Adults don't only solve problems by being hardcore. So I think John has gotten the idea of adulthood a little off, but... Part of that is who his father figures were. Ned Stark, well, pretty strict guy. Not a joyous man, not a happy dude. Understandably so. That's where John gets a lot of this solemn aspect. Dornish James says, him casting the trappings of power aside wherever possible is reminiscent of Ned in King's Landing and Game of Thrones. Yes, absolutely. This all very much feels like him acting like his father. That is it's so very true. Ned didn't want to wear jewelry. He didn't want to wear court clothes. He didn't want to look like the king. He didn't want to do any of these things that made him look fancy. He was shy about that. And the very much the opposite of the Lannisters who would just deck themselves out in gold and, and the trappings of power. You know, and, I can't help think about Cregan Stark. Oh, yeah. Here, and wondering, how, you know, he obviously was powerful. And he kind of laid down the law there. That's but true. I can't imagine him, you know, really relishing in it um, in trappings of power. I think that was like sheer force of will, whereas Ned is just more mild. Yeah, Ned is this quiet dignity, and you know he's capable of drawing his sword and throwing down, but he doesn't hint towards that. He's not like, I'm, he doesn't come off as threatening. You just know he's capable of it. Cregan is just straight up in your face like, oh, I will bite your head off. <laughs> but yeah, I agree. Within the description of him, there's nothing at all about him, like what he's wearing being fancy or anything like that. He looks like a northerner. Um, shaggy, bearded, and intimidating. <laughs> uh, Shea, so we have um, a note here about Stannis lines in our Wit and Wisdom episode. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just pretty basic that you said a bunch of Stannis lines. People talked about Stannis being funny and there's a little book out there called The Wit and Wisdom of Tyrion Lannister you might have seen. And after that came out, I mean, this must have been seven years ago, we released a little episode, The Wit and Wisdom of Stannis Baratheon. Yeah, we talked about eventually doing a follow-up, The Wit and Wisdom of Dolores Ed. And one day we'll do that because he's the certainly the most quotable funny man outside of Stannis. Um, there's other ones too, but he is, of course, it's one of his main purposes is to be comic relief, unlike some of these other characters. So yeah, we do have a Wit and Wisdom of Stannis episode that's, that is qu quite uh, old, but still funny. Stannis' lines haven't changed. <laughs> it's not us being funny. It's just us highlighting Stannis' humor. 
Dornish Dame says, interesting, Danny's chapter finished with her failing to stop a child being burned. John is now very concerned about a child being burned at the wall. Yeah, there is so much parallel storytelling that's not obviously parallel. <laughs> George is incredibly good at this. And we love to point to those, but as Dornish Dame shows, we don't catch them all. There's, we talked about this in a different way. We mentioned the climax of a child being burned as an important part or the child... Uh, the dead child brought by the refugee woman. But yeah, very good crossover. Here's another point. If Shaggy Dog has remained with Rickon, doesn't that make him the only one to ever cross the sea? Joe, this is Joe Buckley's take. Good job, Joe. He says, good job, sailor Shaggy Dog. Yeah, I guess that's true. The first dire wolf that crossed a body of water in A Song of Ice and Fire that we know of. Good job, Shaggy Dog, indeed. This line too, very good catch by some of our flick commenters. There was a, a discussion of glamours and what Melisandre really looks like. What uh, the fact that it's normal. We see in the Quentin's chapter that Shadowbinders wear masks a lot and that, well, Melisandre's mask is her glamour. And the line about Lightbringer, which is steel shimmering like sunlight on water. That's a really clever way to hint that Lightbringer is a fake because it's sunlight on water, steel shimmering on water. It's a reflection. It's displayed and described as a reflection, not the real thing. Brand one, the gang learns Cold Hands is dead, aka the one where they eat Night's Watch deserters. It's not like Storm was an easy cakewalk for them, but it sure seems now in comparison to that, that this that was easier by extension. What they wouldn't give for that little cave or an afternoon back at Queen's Crown. There's no more story time. Hodor's not happy anymore. No one's happy, really. They're hungry. It's rough stuff. Jojen is perhaps faded most of all. He was giving lots of advice and, and keeping up and everything. Now he seems like he's slowly slipping away. For all the darkness in this chapter, it starts with one of these kind of amusing tropey lines. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? <laughs> now, Brand doesn't actually say it out loud. And like, yeah. Or so three times. Yeah, or three times. <laughs> so it's not lighthearted here. It's meant to be an inversion of that. The opening kids on long trips, right? But it's so dark here. It's nothing at all like that. That's not at all where this, this chapter heads. If he, when he does get there, it's, he's not going to be super happy about it either. At least he will, won't be as cold though, or as hungry. Very similar ideas here to the House of the Undying, the temptations from things that are prophetic, but maybe not all on the up and up. Right away, there's so much emphasis with just how dead the area is. Before, when they were traveling, there were trees, there were leaves, there were nature sounds, but now there's snow covering everything, there's very little sound. There's just, it's so dark and dead. And that really sets the tone. Again, this relates to what I said in the beginning, not this episode, but the first episode about sensory elements and sensory descriptions being really key in this book as intellect fades and as human, humans and humanity are forced to be in survival mode. Cold Hands warns them that the silence can be misleading. The woods aren't as empty as they seem. Dead but not empty, that's the undead in a nutshell, right? They, it's quiet, it's free of life, but it's not free of activity. That is a contradiction resolved by the existence of undead. 
So let's take a look at Hagon's checklist from Vermeer. Uh, he said the three worst things apparently were not in any order necessarily, but to eat of human meat was abomination. To mate as wolf with wolf was abomination. And to seize the body of another man was the worst abomination of all. He's already done number three. He's already committed the worst abomination of all through Hodor, and he does that here in this chapter and will do it more later. Hodor doesn't fight him anymore. This also is a bit reminiscent of what we learned from Varamir and how he has to conquer these animals and how some of them, even after he conquers them, they still try to fight and they send hate through the bond, things like that. Hodor just kind of hides in the corner. It's pretty sad. He does number one, meaning eating of human meat as a wolf, in this chapter, knowingly, and then unknowingly eats human meat as a person. We're supposed to be unnerved by all of this, but we're not supposed to see him as evil. He's doing these evil things, but he's not doing them knowingly. He's not intentionally causing harm. He's not hurting other people on purpose. It's pure naivete here. That's a core difference between Bran and Vermeer, among many other differences between those two, is that Vermeer was taught right from wrong and still did wrong. We were also given a lot to suggest he wasn't exactly good-natured as a child. I don't think Bran would have gone into a dog and killed Rickon or John or Rob because he was jealous. He didn't seem like a jealous kid. He was good-natured, Bran, whereas Varamir was not. So there's ample evidence of Bran being a good kid. Now, he's being tested. His good nature is being tested, corrupted through these extreme situations and deprivations, all that. He's learning how to be a green seer and skin changer and survivor and so much else before he's really had a chance to be a person, right? He didn't even have a complete childhood. And from a karmic point of view, going against those teachings did not work out for Varamir. It's unclear how far back these so-called rules, these laws, these cultural tenets of skin changerdom go back but the impression is that they are ancient. Bran is extremely young. He lacks the life perspective and the mentoring of someone knowledgeable. The brain of a young person isn't fully developed. We, young people literally, functionally, cannot figure out consequences of actions. It's just the brain doesn't work that way at that age, let alone having the experience to teach him or other people to teach him, his own brain is functionally not prepared for it, given his age. Speaking of consequences, what does Bran actually expect at the end of this journey? As readers, we're like, oh, training to save the world, things like that. But that's not what he's thinking. In his mind, he simplified it. The complex version is that he's going to save the world. The complex version is something we're going to work out over the course of his arc by talking about it and trying to understand it in this book and beyond. But the simple part is he wants to walk again. That's what he's kind of fixated on. He's like, three-eyed crow's going to fix my legs. That's what he's thinking about. This whole save the world stuff just doesn't make sense to him. He doesn't understand it. It doesn't even make sense to readers necessarily. We kind of grasp it intuitively, but the how is a lot more of a challenge. So imagine how it is to him at his age. There's a lot of forks in the plot road from this point. Bran will acquire a mentor, several mentors, really, since the children are helping as well. It's not just Bloodraven. They're part of the process, too. And arguably, past green seers are in the Weirwood net, past skin changers who are still in these animals. They're part of this process, too. And, and a lesser extent, they're like in the chorus. So he'll go from having less mentoring than Varamir to more. But 
not yet. And so far, at least, nothing they've really taught Bran, even through the rest of this book. They don't teach him about ethics or culture or behavior. It's not the same kind of lessons Hagen taught Varamir. He's not like, this is right, this is wrong. They're just teaching him how his powers work. They're not teaching him how to wield them. They're not giving him any advice on it's wrong to do this, it's wrong to do that. They're saying, oh, you can't do that. They're saying, oh, don't try to talk to your father. Don't try to do that. They're not saying why, though. They're not telling him it's going to cause problems. They're not saying you might cause a timeline conundrum. You might mess someone's brain up. You might do this. There's no instruction as to good and evil and right and wrong here from the children and from Bran. It's all very focused on learning his powers to save the world, presumably. So the stakes are too high for ethics, I suppose. But as readers, we can stop and think about that and wonder, what's this going to do to Bran? He won't be constrained by rules of what should and shouldn't be possible with his powers either. Even the things they are teaching him about what's possible in his powers, he's exceeding that. So even if they were to teach him about ethics and right and wrong and all that, he might not listen because it's just so easy for him. That's something that is really hard to put yourself in the place with. He just, it's just so easy. Like we don't face that problem. I don't have to think I shouldn't be going into other people's brains. I can't. It's not an issue for me. It's not an issue for you. We don't have a power that is invasive to other people. We're not, we don't have to worry about that. Unless you write catchy jingles. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's part of what I was getting at at the intro to this book when I said we're dealing with more and more sensory data, more struggle, less thought, more action. And the, this is really well spelled out for us in this chapter directly with one particular example, at least. Here it is. Then the two rushed together, Wolf and Direwolf, and there was no more time for thought. The world shrank down to tooth and claw, snow flying as they rolled and spun and tore at one another, the other wolves snarling and snapping around them. Even being good is a privilege when so much else is lost. When someone is trying to kill you, you might think of your family, yourself, things that matter most, but you won't be thinking about immigration policy or economics or things like that. The world shrinks to tooth and claw, that quote says, and that's pretty much it. You don't have time for other things in the moment of a fight. But imagine that your whole existence is a fight, a whole uh, struggle. You're not literally wrestling with animals at all times, but you're constantly thinking about where your next meal is coming from. Who has time for culture and high-minded ideals when you're eating acorn paste and running out? I mean, yeah. Wolves don't come out from the woods to shield your sheep. That often, if ever, when the woods are stocked with deer. It's the same for animals. Animals' desperation isn't that much different from human desperation because it comes down to the same thing. Fear, hunger. That takes over everything. Humans can get pretty nasty when we're hungry, right? The term hangry exists for a reason. I get hangry. It's a poignant one, right? It's we understand it. If you've ever found yourself feeling impatient because your pizza was late, imagine eating acorn paste for a few days. <laughs> you probably can't. I can't. I don't know what that's like. I just know it's awful. I, not from experience, though. When there's enough for everyone, people can still be awful because that's people for you. But they are less awful because, well, you still have greed, but there's less desperation. That's something that's removed when everyone has enough to eat. An overarching theme of this book is the pushing of people to their limits. Perfect example. Nothing pushes you more to your limits than starvation paired with fear. And those two things go together. Because when you're starving, you're afraid of not having more food. 
let alone whatever physical danger you're in, which is plenty of here too. It's a theme of the series as a whole. But again, The Dance of Dragons hits so much harder with that. George is trying to bring that element out, trying to bring out this desperation, this sense of kill or be killed. Whether they snap and kill their Lord Commander or snap and eat a person or snap and burn a person for eating a person, or they see 50,000 people cheering for the death of other people, it's fitting that the crossover between animal and human psyche is done amidst these other extremes to see what pushes us. It creates a type of conflict required for literature to be compelling, but the nature of the conflict in this case is fantastical. But starving is not fantastical. The, the reasons why people are starving are somewhat fantastical, but the concept of starving, not having enough food, is as real as it gets. So this spells out quite succinctly how values can fall by the wayside in the face of pure, simple desperation. Here's another example that speaks to that very darkly and poignantly. Quote, Long leagues away, the boy stirred uneasily. Black, night's watch. They were night's watch. The direwolf did not care. They were meat. He was hungry. Short sentences, basic concepts, big deal. Eating Night's Watch because he's hungry. Now, in this case, he's the direwolf, but of course, in a few minutes later, he's going to eat them himself in his physical form. I think this is what is going to make the winds of winter the most uncomfortable. It's not the mass death and war and killings and disease and deprivation and freezing to death, spilling of blood. I mean, that is going to happen. But I think we've steeled ourselves for that much. We've seen a lot of that already in the first five books. The thing that's going to get people, the thing that's going to get a lot of us that we need to prepare ourselves for is that the choices our favorite characters make when they're under these extreme situations, and we may, we may not agree with some of these choices, we may, we may be hurt personally by the things they have to do to survive. It's going to be a test for us readers. Seeing our favorites do things that we maybe can't justify. They think, they, did they really have to do that? Did they really have to take that step? Was that really necessary? Bran is going to be tested a lot, if not the most, because again, his powers are so great and tempting and corrupting. I repeat that none of us, most other characters too, are, can't be tempted by what Bran is tempted by. They simply don't have the ability to just take over Hodor's mind out of boredom or need, let alone need. But he is doing it out of boredom. That's one of these things that's kind of dark. He doesn't need to be in Hodor to survive. He's doing it because he's bored. And that's like, ooh. George is not mincing words here. The gentle giant would whimper, is the quote here. And that's how Hodor is feeling when Bran takes him over. And Bran just justifies it, but he doesn't tell anyone. Because I think he knows it's wrong. He knows it's wrong. He doesn't know how wrong it is. To him, it's like climbing when he's not supposed to climb. He's like, oh, I'm just still breaking the rules a little. It's not that big a deal. Because again, he can't see the consequences. He doesn't see the long-term damage. He doesn't understand things like bodily autonomy right? He doesn't understand that concept. But it is dark. It's wrong. And there's just no one here to tell him not to do it. It's a very similar challenge to the one facing Danny. We've agonized over how impossible so many of her choices are. So many lives depend on her choices. She can make a small error in judgment cost thousands of lives. People might judge her very harshly for that. But I want to just repeat that most people just aren't in that position in the first place. They haven't taken on this incredibly difficult task. Undoing slavery versus stopping the long night. These are not comparable real-world situations. Brand is in a similar spot in terms of having so much power. It's just not as apparent. 
because again, we don't fully grasp the nature of the threat of the others. We just have a conceptual idea, but a lot of the specifics are not visible to us yet. Like, are there going to be ice spiders? <laughs> is there going to be undead giants? Is there going to be an undead dragon? Is there going to be, how bad is winter really going to be? Is the wall going to come down? These things are not as clear. Slavery and systems of oppressions at the hands of the extremely wealthy, we get that more. That's a lot more familiar. Now, number two, if we go back to Vermeer's rule or Hagon's rules, I don't really want to go that deep into this line of thinking, but he says having sex with a wolf as another wolf is abomination, but Brand's parts don't work. So... Can I just tell you, there's been a lot of discussion in our chat about wolves mating. Oh, okay. Including John about him as a wolf mating with someone, about him having a baby, <laughs> a wolf baby. and like, getting crazy over and, there. Huh? Yeah, they've been getting pretty wild, I think, <laughs> for sure. So again, this is just like, he's a boy and he's going to be curious. And well... He's going to sniff some butts. Yeah, he'll, he's going to sniff some butts. All I'm saying is it would make sense for George to go there, you know, having his young boy's curiosity. But I, what, I, what I'm uncomfortable with even more so is the concept that he would do that in Hodor's body. Like he would experience sex through another human's body, which would be, I guess that's sort of like rape, but we don't have a word for that. There's yeah, no word for that. Rape. Um, it's one, already a, like a mental rape of Hodor. Yeah. Two, assuming the, the person he has sex with doesn't know that it's not Hodor, then it's rape there, but yeah, it's, it's also still the, rape of Hodor's body, but it could count as rape of another person. Yeah, it's it's a worse form of it. It's just some new yeah. like subspecies of it that it's bad. It, the, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't think that will happen. Okay, I hope it doesn't too. Mira is very uncomfortable with cold hands. Uh, this is a little more straightforward, pointing out all the evidence he's undead, like his lack of breathing. So talk about another parallel. An undead guardian in black is a wonder, wonderful parallel to what we get much later in this book via Sir Robert Strong, who's already there. He just isn't, he hasn't fully been revealed. An undead guardian in white, right? That was kind of... Uh, the ending of A Feast for Crows in Cersei chapter, she doesn't meet him, but Kyburn says he's ready. And then we'll, we'll fully meet him at the end of her walk. So Bran makes it to the cave and is seemingly safe for a time, but will he be able to stay safe there forever? No. <laughs> no, he's going to have to flee. And Cersei as well is going to have to flee, probably from the Red Keep, and her undead guardian will probably go with her. I don't know if Coldhands is going to go with these guys, Maybe uh, maybe Benjen shows up finally and helps them or something like that. But a little bit of a parallel, kind of neat. We even have a dude missing a hand, serving in a celibate order, both of these examples. You know, some of y'all are aware that I like to do these parallel lives trivia questions out there on, on Twitter and Discord and other places. And Jamie and Alo Lophand have a lot in common in terms of very distant storytelling beats. Uh, Alo lost a hand. He was sent to the wall for sleeping with someone else's wife. <laughs> so Jamie sleeping with someone else's wife. Yeah. And they both killed their leader. Alo Lophand is the one who stabbed Jor Mormont. I mean, Gior Mormont. And obviously Jamie is the Kingslayer. So, yeah. Since accidentally peeping at Cersei and Jamie triggered a lot of the story here, it's a bit of a dark joke that Bran... Also, unknowingly, eats a one-handed man's flesh here. He eats all Olaf hand through, uh, through Summer. And before that, he's ranging out as Summer to deal with the so-called foes, who, as we detailed at the time, those are, these are all Chet's men. Uh, they were all in Chet's conspiracy. Chet, of course, was dead before this, but Olo's throat has been slashed open, not torn or bitten, so cold hands clearly cut him down. Some of the others, though, they have torn faces 
which appear to be raven attacks, which is how Cold Hands dealt with the whites coming for Sam and Gilly. So that all fits with what we've seen on before. Now, here's another bit of uh, symbolic evidence for Bran losing his starkness. Quote. They were his now. They were pack. No, the boy whispered. We have another pack. Lady's dead and maybe Grey Wind too, but somewhere there's still Shaggy Dog and Nymeria and Ghost. Remember Ghost? I do. <laughs> and yeah, that's another thing. <laughs> that's another thing going on here. Not only is Bran struggling with so many things, he's struggling with himself because he doesn't like his own body, but also just the the pull of skin change of the skin changer bond is so strong. Being inside Summer is is empowering for him. And but also it makes him more like Summer. He becomes more like Summer, Summer becomes more like him. He has to remind Summer, don't kill the elk. Don't kill the elk. The elk is our friend. And Summer struggles with that a little bit. Obviously, he obeys, but it's another sign of the line between friend and foe getting a bit blurry here. While he's been inside Summer, he's so buried in this other psyche, he's not even aware that Cold Hands has returned to the long haul, that stuff is happening around him. He's got no sense of his own body. By the time he wakes up, not only is meat cooking in front of him, but it's been cooking long enough that Hodor is already eating. So his, his own senses didn't wake him up out of being connected to Summer there. He slipped into Summer's skin and stayed there despite what was happening back. He's so hungry and it still didn't wake him up. And the thing, of course, the reason he didn't wake up is he's so distracted by eating human flesh <laughs> as Summer because he's so hungry. Now, of course, Cold Hand says it's a sow that they're eating. That's no sow. Come on. Where's this sow come from? There's no sow out there. <laughs> it's the same meat Summer was just enjoying. Bran now eats it himself. He's eating people. The death of the deserters is a mirror to Arya's chapter where she executes Darian herself for his desertion. And of course, she also eats sow and looks at it and is like, is this human? And the kindly man's like, no, nah, it's just pork. Chill out. I do think that was pork. I don't I can't imagine why they would feed meat to human meat to Arya. I mean, maybe they did, but it, it does remind me of that scene. That in one case, she questions it, and Bran is the one who probably should be questioning it, but he doesn't want to question it. He just, it's meat, it's good, he doesn't want to think about where it came from. But also, these men were an active threat. Darian wasn't an active threat. He was a deserter, maybe he deserved justice, but he wasn't trying to kill anyone. These guys were actually following Bran and company. And when Bran accuses Cold Hands of killing his fellow Night's Watch brothers, that's a pretty grave accusation. Well, they were foes. He wasn't lying. They were coming for them. It's one of, this, one of the aspects of this chapter that I was talking about as far as uneasiness with what our characters do. From Bran's point of view, he doesn't know. He doesn't know they were really foes. We do. So we have that confidence that he doesn't, that he's looking at Cold Hands going, what is up with this guy? But if he knew that truth for certainty like we do, it would put him, it would at least remove that particular piece of unease. He would have other things to be uneasy about. He has at least seen Cold Hands interact with Sam and there was no acrimony there. So he, he knows he's not like some rebel brother here. But Bran doesn't know he's become a cannibal. So that's something the readers do know, or at least have the ability to figure out while Bran might be bothered by that if he knew. It's an incredibly creepy moment for the chapter to end when they confront him over his identity 
and that of the three-eyed crow. The door flies open. The ravens are there shrieking. Rereading that moment, it's a real shame we didn't get it on TV because, boy, that's just evocative. The door slams open. Cold Hands is standing there in the door with his mask, and they're wondering what his face really looks like, and the ravens are just screeching. And he says, we get this line. A monster, Bran said. The ranger looked at Bran as if the rest of them did not exist. Your monster, Brandon Stark. And then the ravens are echoing him saying, yours, yours. God, that would have been incredible on TV. Oh, well. Summer does not like the smell of cold hands either. That's kind of ominous given how often the direwolves' feelings are kind of lodestones or prescient about their feelings. Usually they, they're right. Blood Raven in life wasn't ends justify the means type of guy, so I can see him using dark magic to do what's needed, meaning using corpses might be another one of those things that skin changers call abomination. Uh, Hagon just never had cause to bring that one up, maybe, or maybe it's so rare that he, he didn't need to mention, or maybe it's only something that greenseers can do. But you can see as a good example of, is this really uh is this really on the up and up using dead bodies? Um, especially given what we learn about how the skin changer bond goes both ways. What does it do to a person when you're warging into a corpse? Does that mess with you? Does that affect your psyche? Is there a two-way street there too? What sort of emotions come back from a corpse? I don't know, but I can see it having an impact. I can see it going too far. I can see Blood Raven being in a tree for so long, he's lost some of the things that make him human. And that's important. Melisandre too, they're so old. Like I said at the intro, these characters have existed in darkness for so long that some of it's stuck to them. I don't want to go so far as to say they're evil. I definitely don't think that. But, but just losing some of their humanity, it causes some of that darkness to, to grow as much as they're trying to fight it. Again, this connects very well to the idea that of dragons, they're uncontrollable weapons. Just as Bran's powers are beyond his scope to control ethically or just as a means of power, the dragons are her monsters, right? Just like Cold Hands is his monster. And, well, this monster just... His, it's his monster, but his monster just fed him human flesh. And Danny's monster killed a child. He can't wield all this power, control monsters and people and face what's coming and not be changed by it. That darkness is going to stick to him too. It's like in the Lord of the Rings where Frodo is permanently uh, damaged by the pull of the ring. He does good, but do, in doing good, some of himself is lost. Same here. They're killing the boy. Bran has a lot more boy in himself than John does, and he's had a lot less time to be a boy before he has to kill that. It's a lot more tragic for Bran. It's tragic for John, but it's actually a boy with Bran. And well, what does that make him? What does that make him? He's a, if Cold Hands is a monster and he's Bran's monster, well, what is he? What is he? They all go with him or die. This world of monsters. They have no choice. They have to follow along with this. That's what Jojen concludes, and it's hard to argue with that, as dark as it is. Hmm. Shout out to Mira here. She's the still the, the sensible one. Um, she doesn't, of course, between them, none of them have all the answers, but she's still keeping her focus on humanity more than anyone else. She's the most human of this group by far. Jojen is lost in dream world and... 
perhaps fatalistic because he knows he's got a short lifespan. Bran is too young to process all this. Mira's the adult in the room, even though she's, what, 16 or something? That's a lot of responsibility for her too. Let's not forget. As we pointed out at the beginning, there's uh, a lot of emphasis on the moon. The moon is a big deal when they walk into the village. They notice it. Next chapter as well, the moon is going to be very notable. So just keep keep watch out for the moon. <laughs> it's an important little piece of detail here. Nice note from Nina the and a few other Flick commenters and Facebook group people noticed this too. The All the one-eye stuff going on. Bloodraven, of course, is the main one-eyed character here. But we have a one-eyed wolf that we mentioned last time. That's Veramir's second life. But we also have Hodor with one eye frozen shut. So there's, it's just all over here. And these are basically uh, maybe a hint that he's got Bran inside him. And that that is also, you know, Bloodraven's influence. Pretty neat. And uh, that's all, this all touches on this whole idea of Odin and sacrificing an eye for knowledge. Interestingly too, though, that Cold Hands still has both of his eyes. It's noted that they reflect firelight and things like that, which hints to me that his body wasn't lying dead for very long. Whenever, whatever Cold Hands was, I still think he was one of the Raven's teeth. Uh, when he was killed, it doesn't seem like he would have been dead for very long or else his, his eyeballs would have been, that's like one of the first things that goes, right? The Ravens come and eat that, the, the wolves and the maggots. Hmm, fun to think about that, isn't it? Nina says one bright spot in this chapter is, is Bran defeating Vermeer as one eye. It's like showing evil being vanquished, showing that symbolically we have the good guy winning. Um, also, he's, even though he's doing some bad things, still he's, there's no question he's a much, much, much better person than Vermeer, not even close. That's kind of nice to see that he can do so fairly easily. Brushed him aside like he was nothing. Noga Frankel says, if Skagos is both north and south of the wall, how does it affect Shaggy Dog's ability to talk with ghosts on both sides of the wall? Great question. Yeah, if you look at Skagos on the map, it spans both sides. It starts below the wall, finishes above it. Great question. Magically speaking, I guess since the wall is... I, I can't imagine there's an invisible wall barrier just jutting out from the side. So... I guess it's maybe a north-south thing. I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. But I figure that Ghost is, or Shaggy Dog is probably on the southern end of Skagos anyway, probably on the, the south side of the wall anyway. I don't know why they would need to go so far north on Skagos. So. Yeah, I imagine, but maybe they range a bit. Yeah, maybe. You know, they might explore, but I also imagine it's pretty large when you look at it on the map. It, it is definitely a large island. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, I, it kind of... We wonder about that. Like, it's maybe warmer in the South, but who knows? They may have things to show him. <laughs> you know, old, like a heart tree or some old structures, old forts, who knows? Great comment by Guinevere Greenstones here says, this reminds me of Jamie seeing himself in Loris and the issues caused by being too good, too young. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, Bran is the epitome of too powerful, too young. And... uh that applies to Danny as well, as we were saying, although she's not as young and a lot of her power is more external, but still it applies. Jaded Redhead says the French settlers at Fort Caroline survived off some acorn paste. Ooh, strong folk, those French settlers then. That sounds real nasty, but you got to do what you got to do, I suppose. When you're hungry, you eat what's there. <laughs> that's, that's desperation for you. Dornish Dame says, feels like George wouldn't tell us something is an abomination and not have one of his characters carry out the act in question. 
I agree. I think it's Brand's done two of the three abominations, and the third is kind of set up. So I do. It's uncomfortable, but yeah, I kind of think it's going to happen. Uh, Nina says, "I think what Summer doesn't like is the smell of death. Yeah, it's not the corpse stink he doesn't like. It's the smell of death and the cold on cold hands. So it's maybe like a a bit of a crossover concept." She says, especially since Osha was specifically trying to get away from the others, the last place she wants to go is closer to beyond the wall. Yeah, so that's also a good point. Going to Skagos might feel like an escape. The others may not be able to cross that body of water. And, but yeah, it's reason and of course, why they would stay on the south. Of course, the Skagos, you might be like, nah, they don't exist here. <laughs> <laughs> but she's like, yeah, I don't want to take any chances. Many of the villages were burned. They, they see that along the way. Perhaps they do this as a way to make sure that no one comes back to these villages. Mans may not have wanted people thinking they had a, a place to go back to because they didn't really. If you go back to these villages, you're just going to die and become part of the other's army. But clearly some of these villages were not burned. We see from Vermeer's prologue, that is what happened. A lot of them did try to go creeping back. They ran off and tried to go back to their old villages. And well, that didn't work out, presumably for quite a few of them. And a few of them changed their minds and showed up at the wall like we saw in John's chapter. We have this one line too. He was back inside summer, long leagues away, and the night was rank with the smell of blood. Very similar to the opening line of Vermeer's chapter, the night was rank with the smell of man. Very cool. It's showing us some of these uh, similarities between them, and certainly to indicate how much of Vermeer's setup is meant to set up Bran and John and Arya as well. Once they arrive at this lake, there's some focus on how the blanketing snow basically hides the lake. And that is, Joe believes it's a, possible groundwork for Stannis's later stand in the Crofters village because the landscape being so hard to tell the details, the snow covering it and making it all look like one thing is perhaps going to be part of how the Freys are tricked into walking out over a frozen lake that they don't even know is there necessarily because it's so covered with snow. There might be uh, some groundwork. <laughs> groundwork? Get it? Yeah. You get it. All right. That's it for brand one. There's only three brand chapters, the entire book. It feels like there's so much brand stuff in this book. That's just because they hit really hard, but... We're one third of the way through brand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and of course, they aren't in the back half of the book. Brand has no... I think his third chapter is around in the 30s, and there's like 70-some chapters. So basically, all of it's the first half. Tyrion 2, On the Valyrian Road, a.k.a. A Two-Headed Dragon Dream. You liked this title in particular, huh, Shay? I did like this title in particular because I like the book On the Road. And it does kind of have that feel, doesn't it? With, yeah. with a lot of fantasy added in. <laughs> yes, it does have that feel because Tyrion is um, an alcoholic sexist. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, fits. <laughs> I struggled with it to call this one, though, because like Illyrio's food options, rich and full and diverse. There's a massive amount of world building and backstory of both the overt and subtle variety, much of it paired with significant foreshadowing. Griff and Young Griff, Varus and Illyrio, Blackfire lore, Targaryen lore, Wonders of the World, The Grey Death. I particularly love this chapter for the sheer number of rabbit holes. It was a challenge not to go too deep into too many of these to try to refer you elsewhere. Luckily, we've covered a lot of these rabbit holes in our own episodes prior to this, so I can point you to those when appropriate. So as they slowly make their way east, the succession of sites kicks off these various topics. First line is this. They departed Pentos by the sunrise gate, though Tyrion Lannister never glimpsed the sunrise. Nina writes how appropriate this is. It's a new day for him and his life, turned to supporting the Targaryens. 
first Aegon, then eventually Daenerys, over his Lannister family. Of course, just as he doesn't see the sunrise when he leaves, Tyrion hasn't quite started his new day yet. He hasn't met Aegon, and he's a long way from Daenerys. It's also a sign of how much they how much risk that Illyrio and Varys are taking by using Tyrion for whatever their full intentions for him are. They can't have him seen by outsiders. So that's how one of the clues that whatever plans they have for Tyrion, they're significant because they're taking a big risk. Everything is in this chapter is filtered through a lens of wine and pain. Though Tyrion certainly has quite a few insightful thoughts, there's quite a lot he missed. But we get to read this chapter over and over to find these hints. Tyrion can't do that. Here's a particularly stinging line that reminds us of how he's feeling. The litter swayed side to side, a soothing movement that made him feel as if he were a child being rocked to sleep in his mother's arms. Not that I would know what that was like. That's rough and something we need to remember about Tyrion. Something that we probably don't credit enough. We talk a lot about how much drinking he does, how much unhappiness he has, how much trauma he's got from his fatherhood and his own actions. But not having a mother growing up is just a huge deal that most of us can't even grasp how big a deal that is. And there's nobody that knows for sure because there's nobody out there who has both experienced a full life growing up with a mother and one without. People only have ver- their own version of that. We, only, we each only have our own version of that, whatever it is. Tyrion's is a complete lack and his father was crappy. So his upbringing, full of privilege, horrible with the parenting. So this is an important thing to keep in mind, his cynicism, his anger. And one of the things that comes up with this right away is Lirio claiming that his household would never betray him. Tyrion doesn't think thinks that's dumb, <laughs> flat out. He thinks doesn't think loyalty like that exists in this world. It's right for Tyrion to be cynical, especially about Tyr- uh, Illyrio's household, because these are not people that have loyalty to Illyrio based on love. But that does exist in the world. There are people, even in Westeros and Essos, who would legitimately die for someone else because of how strongly they feel about that person, that person's cause, etc. And Daenerys is one of those people. She is someone that many people would die for um, or would risk their life for, for a variety of reasons, not just because she's smashing Slaver's Bay. And interestingly, too, it's funny to think that he's, what he actually says, uh, Tyrion thinks to himself, they'll carve those words on your crypt, <laughs> that, that he would not be betrayed by his household. Danny was technically a member of his household in the Game of Thrones. I'm not sure if that's the reference here, but one way or another, it doesn't seem likely that Illyrio can truly count on his household that much. And Danny herself surely will have reasons to turn on Illyrio when she finds out the kind of man he really is. And this chapter, as if we didn't know already, this chapter gives us a lot more to despise Illyrio for. Just his casual thoughts on owning people and what he almost did with Daenerys and how this is all about his planning and plotting, not about any sort of goodness. There's never, even when he talks about like, oh yeah, good thing I put guards on Daenerys' door if Viserys would have come in. That's him saying, good thing I protected my investment properly, not good thing I protected her from, you know, a horrible experience. Another thing to keep in mind is Lyrio tells so many stories to Tyrion, any of which could be partly or entirely fabricated. Keep in mind that what Illyrio knows about Tyrion is substantial. Varys has probably given him this massive dossier on 
all the things he knows about Tyrion's personality and psychology and how to use that to get what they want from him. I think that's a really, really big factor that Varys is super insightful and has been learning and watching Tyrion for a long time. So Illyrio's information here and ability to deal with Tyrion in ways that Tyrion isn't aware of and even the readers may not be aware of is substantial. So I tried to divide this chapter up into different sections, rough sections, rough categories, because there's so many things that get brought up and they're not all just consecutive in their presentation. So Lirio Varus's backstory is one of the important ones, of course. I don't know why, but I think it matters that he used to call them little mice and now calls them little birds. I don't quite get why that matters, but I think it does. I just don't understand it. But he used to call them little mice and now calls them little birds. Why did that change? Maybe because they're cleverer than they used to be. I think that might be part of it. At first, he describes it as the little birds would, or the little children would sneak in and steal paperwork. Well, of course, first they would sneak in and steal gold and gems. Then they stopped doing that. Then they started stealing paperwork. Then they stopped stealing the paperwork and just copied it. So I think that's the difference. The mice would steal. The birds would like, I don't know, like a mockingbird or a parrot or a raven, just repeat what they've seen. Of course, these are children, not birds. But still, that sort of thematically, symbolically fits, I suppose. What else is odd about all this, though, is that Varus and Illyrio, these are two guys that are schemers, right? They're thieves. They're operators, how have they been so tight for so long that a friendship that's lasted 20 to 30 years, not a very common occurrence in these pages, especially given how independently they operate day to day. There's this wisdom of chasing secrets and information over gold. They basically kept leveling up with their game. They're like, first we steal money, then we steal secrets, then we really steal secrets, then they sell stuff back. All we know for sure is just you can't take it all at face value. And they maybe they just work really well together and they trust that. But at some, at some point, you got to question, they've never turned on each other? They've, never, they've always trusted each other? What's it, what is it? Why is that? For now, since we can't fully understand, we just look at the clues and, and see what we've got. The statue, we looked at it in the first chapter here, but it, it's brought up again and Illyria talks about it. So let's examine what's said here. He says it was made when he was 16. That's odd, because he also talks about being really poor when he was young. So how is he having statues made of him when he's 16? Well, maybe he was just that handsome. He was just like a, mo a young model. I'm like, boy, that dude is really handsome. Let's, let's make him into a statue. Maybe. But <sighs> something maybe doesn't add up there. He also says, I'll never know why Varus chose me. Well, why not ask him? Are you sure? He don't like, <laughs> it's just a weird thing to say. But we also know that Varus, is, if he's trying to restart the Blackfire dynasty, if we're going to go down that line of thinking, you got to have the look. If young Griff is a fake, well, you need to produce a child that's going to have that look. You can't just bring in a brown-haired kid and be like, this is Rhaegar's son. They know Rhaegar's son didn't have brown hair. You got to have the right look. So right now I'm picturing a surrogate situation. Yeah. Varus wanted to have a Blackfire to carry things on, so he just made it. He just it made happened. one. He couldn't do it himself for yeah. obvious reasons. <laughs> so I've, there's not much to suggest it directly, but this, this hinting of, of closeness between the two of them, I wonder if they have their own family connections. Not necessarily that they're directly related through blood, but that is possible. 
but rather that they're both related to young Griff in directly. Sarah, the Sarah he talks about, could very much be a relative of Varys's. It would explain why he seems extra protective of noble bastards. Basically, the Blackfire family collapses through lack of support. They scatter to the four winds and they end up in situations like this, in pillow houses, in mummer shows, things like that. And it would also help explain why he and Illyrio stayed tight for so long, right? He says some contracts are writ in blood. Well, a family connection is very much a blood connection. So I like that. Of the possible ideas out there, I definitely favor this. That young Griff's mother is Sarah and his father is Illyrio. Illyrio's fondness for the boy is palpable. And you'll see more of it next chapter. He just, the way he speaks of him, it's, it's very familiar, very loving, very personal. It would explain a lot. Tyrion knows the profit angle isn't enough here. He knows, like, Lyrio is already filthy, filthy rich. This master of coin thing, this castle stuff, it does not make sense. It's not this much risk for someone who's already stupid wealthy. It just doesn't, just, like he says, there's more to it. Something else is here. And he's right, and I think this is our best bet. How does this all fit with what we've learned about Varys and Illyrio and their overall procedure, their overall method for making money? The scam they've been running for all these years was they would steal stuff and then sell it back to their owners. Here, they're doing the same thing. What they've stolen from Westeros is peace. They stole peace away from Westeros and they're selling it back. They, they bring chaos in the form of a Dothraki horde and an evil Mad King's son. And then they save the realm and give peace back and profit from the generosity that comes from that savioring. And this is the guy. This is they're doing. They're grooming and molding the savior to do that. It's quite a plan. It's very audacious. Nina writes that one of the most important points of this chapter is Tyrion trying and failing to figure out why Illyrio cares about the Iron Throne. It just doesn't make sense for this guy being so greedy and selfish that he would arrange this rendezvous in Volantis, a city steeped in slavery. Like, wait, why are you helping this person who's trashing the slave trade. There's just so many things that don't make sense. Illyrio probably knows they don't make sense, but he knows he doesn't have to explain them. He's in a position of power. He can shrug it off. He can laugh it off. Tyrion has no ability to force secrets out of Illyrio. He's just, yeah, he's, he's got nothing on him in, in, in that turn. At least not right now. Later, the tables could turn. Tyrion could tell Danny all sorts of things and Danny doesn't even have to be told things about Illyrio to turn on him, but the things that are, are out there to be learned about Illyrio are not going to sit well with Danny. Child slavery, little birds, just all these things this is not good. By the way, there's another thing about Illyrio and Varys that their connection and their long running loyalty to each other, despite the difference in their aspect. Like Illyrio is clearly a guy that displays greed. He's the picture of corruption in his physical presentation where Varus is the opposite, which might speak to the family connection even more. Some of the large amount of Blackfire evidence in this, in this chapter, which of course continues throughout later chapters, I of course recommend checking out our Blackfire series, but a lot of that is on Blackfire history. We've also got our super old Valir, uh, Varys and Illyrio. That's true. Those are some of our first episodes we yeah, ever did. You might just get a kick out of that. Uh, yeah. They're so old. There's a lot of Blackfire stuff in that, but we probably have a few, a few holes that we hadn't yeah. caught by that point. I'm but, positive of it. Yeah, it's not a probably, it's a definitely. <laughs> Still, they're probably entertaining. 
I, I don't recall. <laughs> it's been like seven years. We've talked about how the Golden Company and comes up a little bit in Feast and Blood Raven and Bitter Steel come up a little bit, but here's where the stuff really kicks off. It's big time. It's all throughout this book. It's a re- one of the reasons why we think the Blackfire stuff sticks to Griff so well. Because what the hell is the point of all this if not? On the one hand, you can say, okay, it's just historical. It's, the, it's showing us what happens when there's two branches of the Targaryens going up against each other. He doesn't have to be a Blackfire for that to happen, for that part of history to be displayed. But then why are there so many clues to his heritage that are pointing directly to being a Blackfire? Why do we have this clanking dragon story? Why does he talk about his mother being from Tyrosh when the first Blackfire mom was from Tyrosh? <laughs> why are... Those are not connections that speak to parallels to two Targaryen branches fighting against each other. These are direct foreshadowing to his heritage being Blackfire. First of all, there's all this, there's so much in this chapter about the Golden Company and Illyrio talking about a dragon is a dragon. They just want to go home. Now, of course, in the case of the Golden Company, going home means reclaiming their old family castle. So it's not just becoming citizens of Westeros. It's getting titles back. Going from sellsword to lord is a huge jump. So you, their incentive is very straightforward, a lot of them anyway. Of course, this doesn't nearly cover all 10,000 of the Golden Company, but it covers some important uh, officers. And of course, a lot of them would bring some of the Golden Company with them when they take these castles. And I think there's... I'm going to stop for a second and talk in general terms on fandom tendencies to talk about theories. There's, when there's evidence of a conspiracy theory, I think sometimes people do what I consider to be the opposite approach. What I think is it's not wrong to look for where else the conspiracy goes to make it more complicated, to imagine complexities and additions and scope. Because a lot of times that's true, but I think it's not helpful until you, at least not until you lock down the rest of it, until so you figure out as much as you can. When I see evidence of a conspiracy, I try to simplify it because conspiracies by nature have to have a level of simplicity or else they fail because the secret gets spilled. Like Ario Hota said, someone always talks. The only way to prevent someone from talking is to have them really bought in and not ever put in a circumstance where they are forced to talk. And you reduce that risk by having the, as few people know of whatever the conspiracy is as possible. So in this case, Tyrion is pretty sure this isn't about wealth, right? He's looking around like, okay, this can't be about money. Illyria doesn't need money. That can't be his motivation. So he goes to the simplest possible explanation that it's personal, that it's something about a blood connection or something like that. And I think that's the right way to simplify. There's a ton of Blackfire lore in this chapter because Blackfire lore matters. That's another way to look at this. Like, it's not just George just throwing out information for no point. We've all been through this series enough to know that's a very rare thing. George, George has given us a historical topic. When he's throwing out history, it's because that history matters. It's because it's a parallel to something else, usually to something in that storyline. Sometimes he does, he'll talk about Ironborn lore in a Brienne chapter, but the Ironborn chapters will be close to that Brienne chapter. So, it's, so you're still reading them at a similar time. So in a vacuum, we might give equal credibility to Varus actually smuggling out Rhaegar's son and replacing him with a fake. But throughout VRR and in analyses elsewhere, there's just been an accounting of a lot of Blackfire foreshadowing. Not Again, not just parallel storytelling, not just history telling us the fate of young Griff and how it's going to go for him, but 
foreshadowing that this is Blackfire. Another example, there's children's clothes in Illyrio's mansion because Young Griff lived there as a child. Add all this up and it's still complicated, but the framework isn't. We haven't fit all the pieces of this puzzle together, but you can see what the pieces look like. You can see the three-headed dragon <laughs> on those pieces. You can see the neck extending. You can see how put all those pieces together it would form a three-headed dragon. So we maybe don't understand what the full picture looks like, but we have a sense of its components and we've made progress in understanding. Melis the monster is another example here. Here's a really interesting meta take. Nina dug this up. Elio Garcia. The Elio Garcia had this to say in September 2011. The male line of the Blackfires is ended. That rather implies descendants of the female line, daughters of and granddaughters of Damon Blackfire, I'd suppose, are still around. An earlier draft of the lesson chapter had quite a bit more detail about at least the Monstrous and the Blackfires. Some of that is in the RPG that was out uh, prior to Dance with Dragons, and I believe it was in between Feast and Dance it came out. Some of that information ended up there. So it's semi-canon, but it was originally intended to be canon. Elia wonders why George decided to pull it from this book. Maybe it was just too much. Maybe it was too obvious. Some, certainly, when we move to the next chapter, we're going to go through another meta example of detail that was pulled from the book that was Blackfire-oriented, very strongly Blackfire-oriented. So again, George may have decided that there was too much. Maybe that it was making it too obvious. So he wanted to pull back some of the Blackfire info detail to maybe keep that secret alive a little bit longer. Either way, though, it's that that line is really stands out that Elio quoted, which is the male line of the Blackfires has ended. That means the female line isn't. So yeah, he's flat out saying there are still Blackfires out there. It's very straightforward. He doesn't say who, but Sarah is an entirely possible answer. And Varus himself is as well. Even Illyrio is an outside possibility, though I'm less confident on that one by far. Okay, let's talk about Sarah. He gives this sob story about this woman he was in love with. I call it a sob story. It is sad, but I'm not sure how much of it is true because we know Illyrio is, he's got an agenda here. Maybe his story is just so fitting that he doesn't have to embellish it, that it just works the way it is. But I, I got a feeling that he's making a few of the details up. Or Again, I said this last time, but he knows about Shay. He knows about Taisha because Varys told him, or at least, probably told him. So by bringing up a story of his own love affair with a sex worker, he's doing a little like you and me, buddy. We've had some similar experiences in life. We've been in the trenches together. I too had an experience where I, you know, I love this woman so much that it caused political problems for me. That's from a high point of view. That is very much what Shay's relationship with Tyrion did. And same ditto Taisha. Of course, Taisha wasn't a sex worker, but he, you know that was the lie told about her. And so Sarah is, isn't just here to point to Aegon's Blackfire lineage. Nina writes, she's a classic Valyrian beauty, silver gold hair, blue eyes. Her name recalls Tyrion, uh, Targaryen names like Viserra and Sarah with a different spelling, S-A-E-R-A. -E Can I just say that when we got that in the book, yeah. You know, when we when we were introduced to Majel, Sarah, and Sarah. Mm -hmm. Do you remember Aziz how much I flipped out? Yes. Like, oh my God. Yeah. This is exactly spot on. This is so, so transparent. It was one of the first like big clues we took from the World of Ice and Fire when we were reading it just because it stood out. And here's what I'm talking about. Ashe and I, we noticed 
this combination of details that so lines up with Illyrio's version of Sarah here. The story of the daughters of Jaehaerys and Alysanne, three particular daughters, Majel, Visera, and Sarah. So Visera is Sarah's with S-E-R-A, but with V-I in front. Sarah is spelled S-A-E-R-A. And Majel is, well, whatever, Majel, uh, M-A-E-G-E-L-L-E. Majel was a healer uh, and a reuniter. She was the one who brought Jaehaerys and Alysanne back together. And a healer, meaning often you, what you say with a healer is they have healing hands or whatever. And she died of grayscale. Uh, uh, Illyrio's Sarah was, died of grayscale and had notable hands, very soft hands. That Illyrio saved. Yeah, which is gross. But, and more on that in a minute. But he did save them. He, he was, it's a big deal here, part of the story. And uh, if, if this new Sarah, Illyrio's Sarah, is the one that's bringing the Blackfire line back together, recreating it all, then that fits with this whole reuniting of the Targaryens that Majel was responsible for. Visera was ambitious. She was married to be queen. She wanted to be married to be queen, not for love. She wanted to marry her older brother and become the queen. And what I suspect here is maybe Visera's Sarah I'm sorry, Illyrio's Sarah also was ambitious. She wanted some of these same things. She wanted to reestablish her family and Illyrio is carrying forward on her wishes after she passed. So you've got that ambition there too. That's the uh, crucial part of, of this picture. Third, we have Sarah, S-A-E-R-A, daughter of Jaehaerys and Alysanne, again, like all three of these. She ran off, lost royal fla- favor and joined a pleasure house. Then she moved up in the world went from least to Volantis, and her descendants pressed claims on the Iron Throne. <laughs> they showed up at the Great Council. So again, you have a Targaryen character who went to a pleasure house. That's a huge crossover with Illyrio's Sarah. Then you have pressing claims from many years later, which is happening now, right in front of our faces with young Griff. And uh, the losing of royal favor, which is part of Illyria's story of when he married Sarah, like he lost the ability, like the palace of the Prince of Pentos was closed to him from, from there on. By the way, in terms of Blackfire or not, I definitely do think that it's possible that it's this Sarah's descendants that are married, that are related into this. Yeah, absolutely. Because Sarah did go live in a, a Valentine pleasure house. Well, first a Lysine pleasure house, then she basically married up and, and started living in like Lord's palaces and things like that. But yeah, she probably had kids. Yeah, she. we don't know where that line ended if it ever dies. Like her kids are out there. Yeah, she had multiple Not sons. Her kids, but you know, her descendants. Yeah, she had multiple sons that made a play for the Iron Throne in the Great Council. So it wasn't like war. So they failed, but they weren't like executed. So they just went about their business. Multiple, yeah. So we know she had multiple children. Yeah, and they would be just floating around Esso. So yeah, one of them could have been Sarah. One yeah. of them could even be Illyrio for all we, you know, know, like, Absolutely. strictly speaking. They could descend from them, yeah. That, that's not something they would forget. Like, that would they would pass that down to their yeah. kids. Like, you are the descendant of the dragons. Yeah, you they know? might tell them to keep it a low key on the down low. I agree. Like, this could mean that you're killed. But it would not be forgotten. Yeah, you're right. I think keeping it secret would be wise. Yeah. So that's really neat. I mean, and this is, Tyrion misses all of this. He's, he's, he's suspicious, but he doesn't, seize on these particular details as evidence of black fires are still out there. <laughs> he talks about the Golden Company, he talks about Maley's, he talks about Sarah, all this stuff, but he's unable to put it together into a complete picture. But we can. Okay, so yeah, the hands. The hands are another thing that's real creepy. 
Another thing that I suspect is on the table as a possible lie, uh, because Tyrion was obsessed with this song. Hands of gold are always cold, but a woman's hands are warm. I guarantee that Varys's little birds, if not Varys himself, heard Tyrion singing that song, perhaps, and understood why, understood how that song affects him emotionally. So I can kind of even see Illyrio like embellishing this part of the story. On the other hand, I do think that Illyrio really did love this Sarah person, even if he's maybe fudging on some of the details. It's hard to fake the way his voice changes and all that. Maybe he's just really good at it. Varus would be. But Tyrion feels like it's somewhat sincere. And uh, I think that's a clue. We were uh, having fun, I guess, in quotes last week, talking about um, Illyrio saving the hands and all. Yeah. Wondering what what body part would you save? Oh, boy. Your lover. (laughs) But I think hands is, is a pretty solid choice. Yeah. I I can't really think of anything I would rather have. Anyways, that's for you to think about. Well, they won't save Tyrion's nose. It's already gone. (laughs) Yeah, it's like the head would be terrible. Eyes. Yeah, most of it's just terrible. One thing Tyrion seems to understand better than Illyrio and Varys, even though they've been doing this a lot longer, is that they just seem to have this real arrogant attitude, even after it keeps getting proven wrong, that they can predict or guide Daenerys. (laughs) They... There, at one point earlier, is like, she'll have left a Benarine by now. Like, he just takes that for granted. Like, no, she's, if you think that, you don't understand Daenerys. The reason she's staying is predictable based on her personality. For people who understand Daenerys, they know she's not just going to leave those people to their own fate. She did that at Astapor, thinking she had left them in a good spot. Didn't work, but she's determined to not make that mistake again. She's not like, oh, well, that didn't work. I'm going to move on. No, that's not, that's not how she operates. Illyrio doesn't understand that. Illyrio doesn't grasp that she's that kind of person. That kind of person doesn't fit very well into his worldview. He's, he's a kind of guy that thinks that he's, he's got a cynical take on the world. Everyone's out for profit or, you know, themselves and all that for the most part. And it's kind of funny too that she has left Marine just for the Dothraki Sea, not <laughs> to go west. <laughs> Tyrion still wonders what Illyrio's motivations are for him. Like, why does he want Danny to have Tyrion? We brought that up last time. There's certainly a little more to it here. But one thing to consider, too, is that Illyrio is, well, is just wants to get in her good graces. If He probably has bigger plans than her just killing Tyrion. But if she kills Tyrion outright and says, thanks, Illyrio, for giving me my enemy, he'd be happy with that result, too. He'd be like, okay, well, this, we could have gotten more value out of the situation than that. But... If we win Daenerys over to our cause, they'd be happy to sacrifice Tyrion for that result. Throughout this chapter, I've mentioned this briefly too, and just how awful Illyrio is, just the showing how much everything is a commodity to him. Make no mistake, Daenerys' alliance with this guy is going to fall apart at some point when she learns what he's really all about. I figure that that can't be held forever, that he, some of these truths have to come out. And I think that that's part of where he's... a He's come up short in his plotting, is just not realizing what they're really dealing with. Talk about Melisandre says sorcery is a sword without a hilt, or Marwyn says that. Um, Trying to wield Daenerys, trying to control her is also like that. (laughs) Trying to get her to do what you want when she's a true believer in her ideology and she has a sense of justice that Illyrio just cannot possibly grasp. So here's a, now they, one of the things I love about this chapter is how different 
physical features of the landscape kick off discussions. They talk about the Dothraki and Tyrion's naivete comes out. He's like, as well as his father comes out. He's like, yo, why don't you just destroy one of these Kalasars and then the rest of them will take note, isn't it? It's like, <laughs> Lirio just kind of chuckles at that, like, what a dumbass. Like, <laughs> first of all, destroy a Kalasar, you say? As if it's that easy. As if it's just that simple. Second of all, it would have the reverse effect. If you destroy a Kalasar, that's just a challenge. They're like, oh, we got to fight whoever that was. We got to reestablish our supremacy as warriors. We got to be like, let's go teach them a lesson. So just as Illyrio maybe doesn't understand how Danny thinks, Tyrion yet has not learned how Dothraki think. Also, he doesn't know how dangerous they are. It's not just their way of thinking. It's just like destroying a Kalasar is, whoa, <laughs> that is just damn not easy at all. That would be real hard. So he's got some things to learn. But again, he, just him thinking like Tywin. He's like, yeah, destroy this. And then Lyra's like, look, man, money is just better that way. There's a lot fewer people die. Just pay them and they go away. And Tyrion looks down on that with contempt, which is totally, totally projecting his father there. He's like, wait, why is that bad? Wouldn't, like, lots of people have to die to make this happen. And again, I repeat, it won't work the way you want it to. <laughs> They're just going to come back. Not satisfied with just that foreshadowing, we've got stone men foreshadowing. It's kind of foreshadowed in multiple places here. We, get, we talk about the, the shrouded lore, we talk about the Roin, but we also talk about surrogate and grayscale the gray death same basically the same thing uh he sees a lake and they talk about squisher theories and standing stones raised by giants uh, working on some giants episodes by the way by the by there's a sphinx which is very symbolic here the sphinx it's missing its wife or missing its husband there's a female dragon a sphinx missing uh the male one and illyrio says oh no i did have it backwards the male is missing the female's there and it's very much symbolic of Illyrio's plan to unite Danny and Aegon. Next up, we have Andalos, the ancestral home of almost everyone, if you go back far enough, <laughs> aside from the Northerners. And this is a part of triggering Tyrion's thoughts about having trained to be a high septon when he was young and how, well, he turned away from that notion when he learned about what that meant for his ability to go uh, to brothels and such. And that makes him think more about Taisha. And, uh, well, that keeps his mood dark for this chapter. When he wakes, uh, one of many times he falls asleep, they get to the little Roin, which, of course, he's on his way to the larger part of the Roin. He makes an astute observation here. Goyandro had been a Roinar city until the dragons of Valyria had reduced it to a smoldering desolation. I am traveling through years as well as leagues, Tyrion reflected, back through history to the days when dragons ruled the earth. Well, if you are of a mind to think more about that topic, if that really piques your interest, thinking about what that was like, well, you're not alone. We were very much into that too. We have two episodes on Nymeria out there, and Nymeria is the one who led her people away from these dragons as they were conquering the Roinar. So that is pretty fun stuff. The second part is them going down to Sothorios and doing all that business, which is also very cool and creepy. After drifting off and then waking up, Tyrion thinks about the Valyrian roads. Speaking of Valyria, 
and dragon fire, which seems to be the ingredient that makes them so strong and unbroken. Yeah, these Valyrian roads are like uh, like the Martells. They're unbowed, unbent, unbroken. Hmm. And they are, yeah, they're an engineering marvel. They're a wonder of the world. And it's so cool that Tyrion thinks of his love of Lomas Longstrider's work. And here he is going to many of the wonders of the world. He went to the Wall. He went to the Eyrie. He's on the Valyrian roads. He's going to go to the ancient cities of the Rhine. He's going to go pass by Valyria. He's going to go see the Gold Great Pyramid. There's so many things he's going to see that he wanted to see as a kid that his father was like, no, nah, you, you're going to embarrass us if you go out there. Of course, he's seeing these things under kind of rough circumstances, but hey, he's seeing them. He's seeing them. And he's going to see what he may consider the biggest wonder of them all, which is a dragon in flight. He also wonders why Aegon and his ancestors never, never troubled Westeros before they did. Perhaps he was underestimating or overestimating the early Targaryens. Um, Nina's got some good takes on this. It's probably a little bit naive for Tyrion to think that way and maybe a bit of misunderstanding of how Valyria worked. They were not expansive in their center of power. The empire, the freehold reached very far, but the leadership didn't go there. They were all concentrated in the capital. That's where the cultural center was. That's where all the dragon lords wanted to be. So the farther you go away from that capital, the less reach they had, and they didn't want to go there. It's, it's simply that they wanted to stay in their cultural center. The high nobility wanted to stay with the high nobility. They wanted to be, it's like Rome. Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire, and the more... Rome spread out, the harder it was to maintain those borders because it was farther from that capital. Well, that same line of thinking existed here. They're like, well, how can we really maintain? It's going to stretch our resources to rule a whole other continent. I mean, Westeros is way bigger than Valyria. That's a big thing to take on. Not to mention there's prophecies out there that say, well, we'll get into that when we get to the world of ice and fire. It's really interesting stuff that, that there's hints that the Valyrians had magical, supernatural reasons for pausing at Dragonstone, pausing their westward expansion there. So, but even without that, you don't need that explanation. You don't need the supernatural explanation. The prophecy stuff is an add-on. It's by itself, just the nature and logistics of managing that much territory is difficult. Nina says, dragons are great, but they're not an automatic win button. They can't be everywhere at once. And they're not, they're terrible at fighting guerrilla tactics. They're amazing on the battlefield. They're amazing at taking castles. But Dorne, for example, proved that when you have foes that congregate in small numbers and strike at night, things like that, dragons aren't that useful against that kind of warfare. But Tyrion doesn't know that. And Tyrion, his thoughts go elsewhere. He thinks about dreaming of dragons as a child. Some people see this as Tyrion being a Targaryen. It's, it's there. I, this is certainly not convincing, but it's is not necessarily even evidence, but it might be. If Tyrion is a Targaryen, if that comes out to be true, we shouldn't be surprised. I know some people just really don't like the theory, but if it happens, your surprise will probably be because you didn't like it, not because the evidence isn't there, if we're being fair. I think that's the case. Personally, I'm pretty neutral on it. I think it's possible, but there's definitely evidence that Tyrion will be involved with dragons. That is 100%. Whether he rides one, whether he is one, eh. We'll see. But heading to be involved with them, like Makoro's dream says, you know, him in the middle. He has a really interesting dream in this chapter of 
It's really mixed up. He's got two heads. He's with Barristan and Bittersteel and the dragons, which is a little odd because those guys should be on opposite sides. Barristan obviously slew Melee's the monstrous, so the, that's a whole thing coming later. Like, will the Golden Company be okay with Barristan because he slew one of their leaders? Will he be okay with them? <laughs> I mean, how could all these guys ever be on the same side? This is another thing about Varus and Illyrio's plan. It's like, how are they all ever going to get along? There's too much. There's bad blood. There's ambition. There's ego. Some of these pieces just don't necessarily work. But it's still, regardless, this dream is really fascinating. There's subconscious thoughts probably with his one head crying and his other head uh, laughing. Uh, the two-headed part is somewhat of a reflection of Melis the Monstrous who, had, who was two-headed, had a congenital twin coming out of his neck. But also it's a sign of his split loyalties from a subconscious way, which goes for all these characters, like whose side are they on? Who, whose loyalty are they really holding? Are they just in it for themselves? It's really, really interesting. And as much as it tells us, it also makes other things more hazy. He also thinks about what he would do with the dragon. It's a little bit dark. He thinks, well, she's got three dragons and she only needs one of them for herself. So that's a sort of foreshadowing for him riding one of them. But um, not necessarily what's going to happen. But if he, it does happen, well, it seems like he would use it to get revenge on people. He would have a very uh, vindictive attitude at first, which is not, if only that. And well, that's not good. So... I wonder what uh, Daenerys is going to see in him. She's going to see all this darkness in him, see the advice he's capable of giving and how she's going to view him as a human being. Very curious about that because I don't think it'll be like the show. And we've always wondered how it's going to go. Like, what is she going to think of him? The chapter ends with him slipping away into darkness. It's similar to how his first chapter ends and how he's that symbolic of him sort of fading into bitterness and allowing that to rule him and, and vindictiveness as if that's the, the reason he has to live. Well, we can only hope he finds better reasons than revenge to live. Maybe being confronted with the truth of the long night coming and the others will have an impact on him. He's one of the characters that has no idea about that. And that's going to that's gonna change a lot of people's minds as to what where their priorities lie and what really matters in this world. Dornish Dame says, before the death of his brother Arthur, Henry VIII, like Tyrion, fond of wine and women, was intended for the church. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, you see that every once in a while with these powerful families in the real world. They uh, groom someone to be in the clergy because there's a lot of power in the clergy and these powerful families want to have power because they're... Yeah, we the, see that in the phrase and the Tyrells and the high towers. Oh, yeah, great example, the phrase and the high towers for sure. There's lots of examples of the high but towers. The Tyrells, there. too, definitely have also pushed for it. They have lots of people in the church. That is true. That's, that's I guess it's more of a recent thing, historically speaking, but uh, 100% true. Yeah. It's just a normal thing for them to want to take power for the family wherever they can get it. Nepotism is, is strong that way. And, and when you're a noble family and laws, can affect your fortunes. Well, you want to be <laughs> you want to be around where those decisions are made. I wonder about the symbology if it's intended that when Illyrio makes some of his ignorant comments about Daenerys and her uh, what he can get her to do and what she's going to do, he pops one of these roasted larks into his mouth and crunches it noisily. It occurs to me that a roasted lark is a burnt little bird. And that might be the fate of a lot of those little birds if the Red Keep is torched, if they're just like in the walls or just there and nobody even knows they're there and they get, yeah, they're kind of collateral damage. Oh boy. 
way back in, I don't remember, Storm of Swords, A Clash of Kings, there was the mention of a, he- a hero reborn in the sea. And we kind of missed that reference at the time, but it was the Dithraki Sea is what was being referred to. Daenerys is the frightened child who sheltered in my manse, died on the Dothraki Sea, and was reborn in blood and fire. So Illyrio clarifies that for us here without knowing what he's clarifying. Uh, Commenter Meg on Flick brought up a similar point that I mentioned briefly earlier about Tyrion's two heads being a reflection of his conscious and subconscious. It's not just about mirroring Maelys and having two heads, but uh, that's why one head is crying and one head is laughing, because... He's of two minds about all this stuff. His vindictive side is dominant. But deep down, he's all broken up about all this. He's sad and, and depressed and lonely. Very lonely. Real briefly, too, Illyrio talks about pirates, but that's exactly what wrecks Quentin's mission. Three of his friends are killed by similar pirates that are mentioned Pentos. We didn't see much of Pentos. Tyrion was trapped inside the manse, but I do think we'll be back. I mean, the Tattered Prince wants it. Uh, Barristan apparently promised it to him as part of his maneuvering behind the scenes while Danny's gone. Maybe we'll just hear about it off page, but we're definitely not done with Pentos overall. Uh, and it might be, when we come back to it, it might be Illyrio getting his comeuppance, even though he says at the end of the next chapter, he claims he's going to meet them in Westeros. We'll see if he ever gets that chance. I'm a bit dubious that he'll ever get that far. We'll see. Speaking of a character who doesn't get very far, who might have, speaking of a character who is burned to death, it might be Illyrio's fate, might be Varus's fate. It's definitely Quentin's fate. The merchant's man. Here comes the son's son, a.k.a. George's pen, swings in a cruel arc. The name, the explanation, of course, the son's son is what Quaith calls Quentin, when she's saying next comes the blankety-blank, dark flame and kraken and sun's son. So that's clearly him. He is the son of the sun, meaning the son of Dorne. And of course, that's also a Beatles song. Here comes the sun. You do the do-do-do-do. Thank you. <laughs> Little darling. And George's pen swings in a cruel arc. Well, this whole arc is cruel. <laughs> Quentin's chapters are not about Quentin so much as they are about set up for other things. They, of course, they're also about Quentin. George doesn't just write characters to be ignored, especially POV characters. But it's fair to say it's less about him than most POV chapters are, POV uh, arcs are. One flick commenter, I believe it was Archmaester Rennie, said this is like kind of like an extended prologue where you have misadventures of a character that dies at the end of it, which sets up a greater part of the story. So yeah, it's more like a four, I guess it's four chapters, four, a four-chapter prologue, <laughs> in a sense, yeah. The first line... Adventure stank. It's really hard to be that succinct and fitting all at once in two words. It, it describes his whole arc. He goes off to win the queen's hand and tame a dragon. That's the adventure... And, well, he dies, so that stinks. And his body literally stinks. Takes him a few days to die. He's burned and smells horrible. And the ship named Adventure stinks. It stinks physically because of rot and filth and other things and bodies, but also it stinks because the captain's words are not the words of an honest man. They suspect bad things will happen if they take his ship, that they'll get out to sea. 
he'll cut their throats, toss them overboard after taking their stuff. So if that were the header and him the main character, if Quentin Martell was his own story, going off to win the queen's hand and tame a dragon, that would be a setup for a kind of story we've all seen a million times out there in the world. Like this plucky little hero goes up against all these impossible odds and merges the hero. It would be recognizably familiar, very familiar. But the way it ends, of course, no, not familiar at all. Most of us probably didn't actually expect Quentin Martell to ride a dragon. I mean, we had barely even heard of this guy. For him to be one of the three heads of the dragon, not very likely. To die, though, to be killed by the dragons at the end, that's not the... Just because you don't expect him to ride one doesn't mean you do expect him to die. Personally, when I was reading the first time, I was like, oh, this dude's going to set the dragons loose. That's how they're going to get out, and then other stuff will happen. Well, I wasn't entirely wrong. That is how they got loose. But I still didn't think he was going to die until that last line when he was on fire. Like, oh, wow, this dude might be dead now. So I'm curious what y'all thought about this, this chapter, this arc. It's, it is kind of an unusual arc, the way it stands out. Just the first read-through for a lot of folks, probably like, whoa, <laughs> you weren't expecting that. But there's the way this is framed, though, in retrospect, it's just that we didn't believe the obvious. It's the same thing with the Red Wedding and with John's stabbing. George told us it was going to happen. We just didn't believe it. There's so much ominousness, so much setup, so much foreshadowing. This is going to go badly. We just didn't believe it. We didn't trust that it would go that badly. We didn't open our minds to that possibility nearly as much. Now, I can't speak for everyone. Some of you all were probably right on top of that. But most of us just didn't see that coming. And it's something George is extremely good at. Even after we've seen the same setup a few times, we still don't expect it to go quite this badly. Like I said, Nina describes why some of this, the presentation gives us a lot of clues. Like in a typical adventure story, you would not see Quentin's best friend dying in a brief flashback. You would see that firsthand to suffer with him, to really feel what he's feeling, to really be bought into his story. But it's just a quick moment of flashback. We start in the stench. We start amidst the filth. We start amidst things have already gone wrong. We don't see it go wrong. We see them trying to fix what's gone wrong. So it's just the point at which we are let into this adventure, it's already stinking, right? This is, we're not starting from the beginning when it's the plucky heroes all ready to go, which we see in retrospect. That's already gone. So that's really neat. That's some of the things like, wow, he really did just tell us what was going to happen. And we just didn't, <laughs> we just didn't know it. These weren't challenges that the plucky hero has to face. These are reasons why he can't succeed. <laughs> it's like, yeah, of course he can't win Daenerys over. He's shy and plain and tongue-tied. How's he going to win the girl when he can't do that? Dario laughs at the guy, and I wouldn't laugh at him, but Dario's reasons for laughing are like, yeah, well, it is kind of ridiculous to think this was going to work. And it's also important to remember how A Feast for Crows ended as far as the Dornish plotline, which is that Doran very vociferously and powerfully tells us after dancing around the topic for so long and it's not quite knowing what's happening. Oh, wow, he really is into this. He's really justice, vengeance, fire and blood. But this is how that's happening. Bring back our heart's desire. This is the man he sends to do it. A 16-year-old with very little life experience. 
Mm, sure, he had some friends with him. But these, most of these friends, with the possible exception of this maester, aren't, don't have a lot of life experience either. So right away, you wonder, maybe Doran isn't as competent as we thought. Maybe he's flat out foolish in some ways. Opinions on Doran range from the misguided to, the guy, to this guy is an idiot. And I'm not sure where I fall exactly, but it is kind of hard to get past some of these mistakes. It's so bad. Some of the mistakes, some of the setup is so bad that it's got people thinking conspiratorially. Like they think that Doran sent Quentin to fail on purpose, which I don't buy that. It's his son. I really don't think he sent his son off to die. I just can't accept that given what we know about Doran Martell. I just don't think so. Joe writes that these are a lot like the Knights of Summer, but we don't see them as Knights of Summer initially. We see them after they've already had setbacks. He thinks to himself, it was not supposed to end like that for them. That's the kind of attitude you have when you think this is all a story. This is all a game. Of course, it's not supposed to. It's not supposed, there's no supposed to in life. End like that for them is a sentiment that comes from stories, not from life, not from, well, what happens, happens. Life doesn't work like a story, even when it's set inside a story like this. George isn't trying to work it that way as much as possible. George makes it clear right away. The horrible, rotting smells and other sense of disgust, other human ideals that are corrupted here, other awfulness of Volantis. Volantis is a bad place. But he's driven by not wanting to fail. He, he has taken so much of this personally. He's a very serious young man. Here's a quote. His father's disappointment would be more than Quentin could bear, and the scorn of the sand snakes would be withering. Doran Martell had put the fate of Doran into his hands. He could not fail him, not whilst life remained. We can see how important this is to him, how heavy the burden and why he makes the later choices that he does. But yeah, it looks like he was pushed too hard. I mean, he can't. He just, these are, like, again, I'll repeat. He, these are supposed to be in a traditional story. These are just, oh, these are all things he's going to overcome. It's reverse psychology, but it's the kind everyone's used to. It's like, oh, yeah, these are, these are kind of, he's going to beat all these challenges. The author's just telling us how hard it's going to be. Well, no, he's just telling us that this is too hard. <laughs> the most beautiful woman in the world, this guy? Mm. He can't even work out which drink water twin he kissed and he was scared of them. How is he going to stand up to Daenerys, who is far more intimidating, if, if that's how you look at it? <laughs> he's not a romancer. He's not a wooer. He's, he's not even really a warrior. We saw what happens when he's confronted by the brazen beast trying to attack him when he was freeing the dragon. It was Garrus Drinkwater saved his life. He just froze and stood there. Interestingly, too, another trope that's broken here is Archibald Ironwood. He's not introduced that much this early because he's because of his uh, seasickness. He's barely in this chapter. He's more prominent in the other chapters of Quentin's arc. But he's this big kind of brutish dude that actually turns out to be kind of subtle and nuanced in his thinking. So George has really uh, turned up the reverse expectations on this arc, big time. It's like he's going full bore. Joe, of course, has a few thoughts on the castle, of course, on, I mean, not on the castle, but on the city of Volantis and a few other things. Joe has written the book, Great Castles of Westeros. He's always very on top of things like that, talking about the black wall of Volantis, 200 feet high, wide enough for six chariots to race. That is way bigger than any other Westerosi castle that we can talk of, except for maybe Hall. Joe's take on that is the description of the walls is being made 
because he expects him to fall. Maybe not literally fall, but to be breached. And the long bridge we talk about uh, or is talked about a lot and the way the triarchs don't touch the ground and tigers and the elephants, a lot of the stuff is set up. Tyrion's, of course, going to be on the long bridge as well. That's another wonder of the world. Very interesting. Nina Rice at Volantis is gross. It's a city that's rich and rotten, decadent in every sense of the word. Totally agree. It reminds me of New Orleans a little bit. I like New Orleans. New Orleans isn't gross, but it does have that rich and decadent feel to it. Not rotten necessarily, but maybe in some places. Every city has some rot. I'm not taking a stab at New Orleans. I like the place. The captain they contract with is half pirate, half pander. A man Quent assumes would take their money and cut their throats after, and they're probably right. And this is not atypical of Volantis, apparently. The main staple of the Volantine diet served at every meal, literally rots teeth. They have this sweet wine. It's like every aspect of this place is corrupt. It's sort of like Karth, but less fantastical, not quite as far gone. Not just full of slave labor, but dependent on it. Five to one is the ratio there. Another thing that sounds like Rome. Rome had a lot of slaves living there, a huge slave population. And there's all these different slave classes. There's all these kind of odd social rules, like you're nobody if you don't ride on an elephant. And that's so funny to me, this white, these little white elephants. White elephant is a very symbolic thing. A white elephant is traditionally a gift that impoverishes the recipient. Like it's the kind of gift that you can't give away because it's too nice and it would be an insult to the person that gave it to you. Maybe that's a really powerful person who gave it to you. So you can't give their gift away because they know. And yet the upkeep on an elephant is ridiculously expensive. That is the traditional story. There was a Chinese, I think Chinese emperor who gave a white elephant to somebody he didn't like uh, to, to ruin them financially because they knew that you couldn't give away the emperor's gift. Oh, no, you can't do that. But the, the, the upkeep of this elephant ruined them. So <laughs> if you've seen The Simpsons, you've seen a similar episode when Bart gets an elephant and he can't, they cannot afford the upkeep on that elephant. Did you say that after you saw me in the chat? No, did you just talk about that? In the chat, I wrote, Bart couldn't keep his elephant, dot, dot, dot. And I was about to continue and say, but it's okay because it's a jerk. Yeah, that elephant was a jerk. (laughs) But you want jerky elephants when you're going to war, I think. (laughs) And but so in this case, it's like this whole city is full of white elephants. They can't afford to upkeep their own society. It's almost saying like without using slave labor and these other things and and the rot in the city is with its people. To afford this, they have to become rotten inside, right? It's, it's, it's a lot of that going on. Of course, modernly speaking, white elephant is also a form of gift exchange. It's just kind of similar to Secret Santa. Blink and you miss it. Penny and, and uh, Oppo are in this chapter very briefly. And uh, well, you'll see them again when, we get to, when Tyrion gets there. And uh, well... She's going to get a ship to Marine as well with Tyrion. Um, what else do we have here? A lot of setup for Daenerys and long-term reaction of Essos to her with sellsword companies trying to get involved. That's a big part of this. They're trying to be recruited. Sellsword companies yelling at them, trying to recruit them, singing their songs and all that's the windblown. Of course, the windblown is a big setup here as well. That's the Tattered Prince's company. And of course, they're a big part of the story. They're wrapped up in Pentos that we just talked about last chapter. They're, Tatter Prince wants to get Pentos. He was apparently 
a candidate to be the Prince of Pentos, but he's like, y'all kill your princes very often. I don't want to be, I don't want to sign up for that. More on him when we get there. It sounds like this Maester Kedri was pretty impressive. This guy that one of the great resources that Doran did give them. Arguably, he didn't give them enough, but he did give them this, which was important. But Maester Kedri died. This guy who spoke like every language, man, that is, that is a big deal. So another huge irony here is the reason that Quentin's mission is a secret is that he's worried, Doran is, that Tywin will find out and see that as a betrayal. He's worried about what Tywin's going to do. But we saw what Tywin did when he heard about news from Slaver's Bay and Three-Headed Dragons and Karth and all that. He ignored it. He didn't care. <laughs> He's like, I've got bigger deep things to worry about. So that's like, honestly, Doran might have just could have done all that without secret. He could have given his son a lot more to work with, a lot more money, a lot more men, a lot less secrecy. Oh my God. I really wasn't reading ahead in the paragraph there. Yeah. I just started talking about that in the chat. Oh, did you? Yeah. I was like, Aziz always reminds me that he had more in his crew originally but Doran still should have erred on the side of safety and numbers versus it all being super secret. We are really brain melded today. <laughs> yeah, I know. You'd think I should just know where you are, but I was paying attention <laughs> to the chat. <laughs> well, the chat is awesome. Y'all are always coming up with great ideas, so I understand that being distracting. <laughs> Valar Reredus is a sensory overload. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, it's, very, it's very unlucky what happens to Quentin's group. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, there's bad luck. There's poor planning and bad luck. I think it's fair to criticize both sides of this. Uh, I'm not going to read all of this take from Nina here, but I want to remind you all uh, that Fever Dream, George wrote this book called Fever Dream, which is a vampire novel set on the Mississippi River. And this is part of why we, we were talking about New Orleans earlier, that the way New Orleans is portrayed in this setting is very similar to Volantis. So it's a great book on its own. But if you read it, you might get the same vibe of Volantis in New Orleans. I do recommend that book. One day, perhaps in the far future, we will go through some of George's other material. And that'll be high on the list because it's a good book. Nina writes, also, Doran worries that Varys has informers everywhere and that Sun's spear would bleed if his purpose were discovered. But Varys actually wouldn't probably tell the Lannisters about any of this because he'd be happy with Quentin trying to recruit or get on board with Daenerys. Maybe not marry that part. He's not, he wouldn't want. But the whole Dornish wanting to be allies of Danny and maybe... King Aegon, their Aegon. They, he, Varys would want that. So that's also ironic that uh, two different examples of Doran's secrecy working against him because he's hiding something that would have actually either been not a problem or better had it gotten out. That is very tragic irony. Dornish James says Sansa reluctantly comes to accept, accept people want to wed her for her claim to Winterfell while Quentin seems to accept from the get-go that if Danny marries him, it will be for Dorne and Dorne Spears. Yeah, so they're basically like a lot of noble-born kids, especially the, the ones at the top. They have so many privileges, but one of the ones they don't have is choosing to marry who they want to. Their marriages are often about family and not about love. Lady Leaf Underhill says, but they think Danny will marry Quentin for political reasons, and she does marry someone she's not into for political reasons, Hisdar. That is very true. Great, great point. Wooing Danny, Quentin's not made for that, but the political necessity might have been enough. That might be something that we can say, okay, Doran's not a total idiot for that, because 
Danny might just be like, yeah, Dorn, political marriage. I don't care if Quentin's plain and not exciting as a man. This is, I mean, that argument definitely flies for his dar. She, Danny is not into his dar even a little bit. So she's the type of person that will marry for political reasons. So that's uh, a fair point. Maybe, maybe Doran deserves a little bit less scorn for that aspect of this. Dario would not agree, but hey. Tree Girl and Deborah Lynch have a similar take here, oppositely expressed. Tree Girl says, Doran is bad at the Game of Thrones. There had to be a dozen better plans than this. And Deborah Lynch says, why doesn't Doran give Quentin more resources? <sighs> he probably should have. I, I think we've covered several reasons why, but even without those reasons, I do think he overvalued secrecy in trying to be too cautious about the secret. He was lax in caution over his son's life. And that's a big deal. Also pointing out too, just the difference between Quentin's arc and Ariane's arc and how Ariane has had a chance to learn from her mistakes. And she got to make mistakes and then learn from that. Like it didn't, her mistakes weren't, didn't kill her. Quentin, unfortunately, <laughs> not so much. But more on him. We've got, I think, three more Quentin chapters in addition to so many other fun chapters coming. Last week, we covered 131 minutes, 26 seconds. This week, it's 161 minutes, 34 seconds. So far, a nice even 293 minutes, which is a nice even 10% of the book. So much has been covered already, but we've got 90% of the book left. So much more fun is ahead, folks. I'm so excited. This is such a great book. As usual, check the video length if you would like to or are curious about the difference between podcast length and video length, anywhere from five to 20 minutes gets edited out of me stuttering or saying things a little wrong or occasionally something goes wrong technically or what have you, cutting out ums and uhs. Take your pick, whether you like the video or podcast version more. Last minute super chat from Karen Sita, who says, don't forget to like the video. Yes, please do. Clicking that like button does a lot for us. You'd be surprised, maybe or maybe not. If you wouldn't, if you're not surprised, then you probably already clicked like. So the rest of you, please do. It really does help get us picked up by the YouTube algorithm. On the podcast side, if you leave us a review on iTunes or Podcatcher or Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts, there should be a way to leave a review. That really matters a lot too. Obviously, we love financial support, but you guys would be surprised at how much these little bits of help through social media actually raise our profile and help us find new listeners. New Westorians are out there waiting to join. They just don't know it yet. Go check out our website. If you are looking through past episodes of Valar Reredus, you can go there and see, go to whatever chapter you want. Pick the book, pick the chapter, and it'll take you right directly to it. So you have your way to navigate through any chapter in Valar Reredus. Minus the ones that we haven't made yet. We mentioned several episodes or referred indirectly to several of our other scripted episodes or our scripted episodes, not other ones. These are not scripted. They're partly scripted, but we have fully scripted episodes, which is mostly what we exclusively did for a long time. But now we are a hybrid type show. The episode on Skagos, of course, I mentioned. We have Blood Raven 3. The whole Blood Raven series is fun, but Blood Raven 3 is where we talk about who is Cold Hands. 
the Blackfire Rebellion series as a whole as well that relates to Bloodraven, but isn't all about him. Of course, a lot of that was referred to here with all this stuff about young Griff. And I tell you, another example there is John Connington is a straight parallel to Bittersteel. <laughs> War of Nine Penny Kings. We did two episodes on the War of Nine Penny Kings with Stephen Atwell earlier this year. And that's a lot about Melee's the Monstrous and the Golden Company and all that. I mentioned the Nymeria episodes, those two of those as well. Really fun world building exploration, lots of parallels to Danny and a couple of parallels to, to Arya's wolf Nymeria. Talk about ruling the riverlands like she does. Well, that's Nymeria ruled a land of rivers for a while too. Then the wit and wisdom of Tyrion Lannister, of course. Last but not least, we made a shout out for that one. Well, of Stannis, but yeah. I'm sorry, of Stannis. Yes, I spoke. We mentioned Tyrion too, but that's we don't have an episode on that one. <laughs> so, oh, oh, and Guinevere Greenstone's another last minute super chat says, thanks all and thank all of you. We appreciate you coming live today or listening after the fact or watching after the fact. Next time up, we have two John chapters. We start and end with John. The first one is the gang reenacts the Tower of Joy, AKA Ed fetches a block. Tyrion three. Blackfires assemble, a.k.a. the gang meets Duck and Egg. Duck and Egg, yes, Duck and Egg. Davos 1 follows. The gang goes to the sisters, a.k.a. Webbed Fingers and Red Herring. And finally, John 3, One Realm, One God, One King, a.k.a. The One with Non-Man's Burning. I could have called it The One with One Realm, The One with One God, yeah, hmm. Thanks to Joe Buckley and Nina for their invaluable writing assistance for this episode. Their takes were throughout, and you can find their own work at the Isle of Faces podcast for Joe and Good Queen Alley with one L on Tumblr for Nina. Thanks also to our History of Westeros mods. Every week in Facebook, they post the chapters with artwork and the opening quote and discussion points. And we have a great time chatting about the chapters over there. Same goes over for Facebook. I mean, for, sorry, for Flick, Slack, and Discord. Shout out to Sir Slorp, who is our Discord admin. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld, the man over at Claradox.de, who made these maps that you see behind me. Thanks also to Kevin McLeod for the Valar Rebreeders intro music. Thanks to Joey Koval and Jesse Townsend for... Wait... Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval. Jeez, <laughs> that's funny. Sorry, guys, for your excellent out intro and outro music. And thanks to our engineer for improving our sound quality. Thanks to our patrons for the financial support of this show. We would not be here without you. Once again, you can cut out network ads and get all sorts of other benefits by joining us on Patreon for just a couple bucks a month. Comes with bonus episodes as well. Episodes you can't get anywhere else are available through Patreon. And as we always like to do at the end of the show, we recommend you go check out Here Be Dragons. Lady Leaf Underhill reminds us of what the topic is this time. Lord of the Rings and Dungeons and Dragons. Very cool. I guess that's uh, su not surprisingly, Lord of the Rings is a insightful and uh, inspirational setting, not just for fantasy books, but for role-playing settings. Obviously, as one of the first fully developed and still one of the most developed settings for, for role-playing or for fantasy, 
well, I'm sure they've gonna, they're going to have a lot to talk about, and that sounds like a great discussion. So yeah, check them out. As of now, they're starting in only about 10 minutes. If you're catching this later, well, the discussion will be there waiting for you on the Here Be Dragons channel after the fact. That's it for every. Uh, that's it for us today, everybody. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with more Valar Reweeks. <laughs>